I'm Abe Forty here. I was just looking at uh, Twitter, and uh, Kevin McDonald has been tweeting quite a bit. So here is the setup. All right. So January 6th, Nathan Kaufness tweets, this is my magnum opus on the Jewish question, my final reply to Kevin McDonald. I respond to every important objection raised over the past five years is disproportionate Jewish success, just a matter of IQ. What is the Jewish role in open borders? Why do Jews avoid white nationalism? Uh, what are the reasons for anti-Semitism? And then Nathan is asked, are you Jewish? And do you think that this affects your per- perspective? Does it bias you? The main claims of your paper that Jews are not ethnocentric might seem ridiculous. And Nathan Kaufness responds, well, Kevin McDonald is a self-identified ethnic activist for white Gentiles. Everyone can be suspected of bias. So you have to look at the arguments regarding ethnocentrism, provide evidence for this claim. There's no reason to think that Jews necessarily more predisposed to ethnocentrism than white Gentiles. Then Kevin McDonald joins this Twitter thread on March 26. He says, as I've said many times, I became an activist after reading the literature on Jewish history, particularly their involvement in promoting immigration to Western countries. Facts on the ground as a defensive strategy. I realized that Jews really are not our friends. Before that, I was a Reagan-type Republican. I was just a mainstream conservative. You, Nathan Kaufness, are an ethnic activist because you strongly identify as a Jew. So uh, on what basis does uh, Nathan Kaufman strongly identify as a Jew? He doesn't practice Judaism. He's an atheist. He's married to a non-Jew, to a, a Korean woman. He's not affiliated with any of the activist Jewish organizations, such as the Anti-Defamation League. He's uh, criticized the F- Anti-Defamation League publicly in, in one essay I'm thinking of in, in particular. I just don't know how one would make the the, the strong argument that uh, Nathan Kaufness is an ethnic activist. He doesn't seem remotely like that. So here's Kevin McDonald. He says, my friends, I realize that the organized Jewish community, the power, the media, and the money has directed at promoting an end to the Western European core of the U.S. Well, is this any different than the inclinations, the activism, the the scholarship, the the politics of, say, white Gentiles, Anglicans, uh, Mexican-Americans, Chinese-Americans, Japanese-Americans, right? Is there... Any evidence that the the Jewish role here is any different than that of people with similar levels of IQ and education? So Kevin McDonald says, I should recount how this all came about. In 1988, I published Social and Personality Development and Evolutionary Synthesis. And so prior to Kevin McDonald's trilogy on the Jews, well, really prior to his final book on, on the Jews... Uh, Kevin McDonald was this you know, fairly well-respected uh, scholar. I don't recall any you know, criticisms of, of his scholarship. And so, 1988, he publishes Social and Personality Development and Evolutionary Synthesis. And the last chapter is on the Spartans as a group strategy. So, highly militarized, high levels of discipline, boys socialized to be soldiers. And I had this idea that humans, because of our cognitive abilities, could create groups It could be vehicles of selection because cheaters could be punished. Think of it military platoon. So this was the start of the cultural group selection model. 
altruistic gene is not required. This was very controversial at the time, but now it is standard thinking for many in the field. At the time, I was in close contact with David S. Wilson, the premier group selection theorist. He encouraged me in this direction. So as a follow-up to the Spartans, I settled on Judaism because Jewish history is so well documented, beginning with Paul Johnson's History of the Jews, deciding that such an approach could work. Then I read the Old Testament resulting in a people that should dwell alone, Judaism as a group evolutionary strategy, which was well-reviewed and well-received. In doing this reading, I was exposed to the history of anti-Semitism. I decided to use the group approach on anti-Semitism, resulting in separation and its discontents, which came out in 1998. So he's, Kevin says that he submitted this manuscript in 1994, but his publisher, Prager, sat on it for four years. So by the time they finally approved it for publishing, it had expanded into two books. So the last chapter of the original manuscript now expanded into the eight chapters of Culture of Critique. So both were published in 1998. So Kevin says, in reading the history of anti-Semitism, I became aware of the long history of Jewish writers who act as activists for their people. This is essentially the approach used in culture of critique. Along the way, I became much more aware that I had group interests. At first, a very strange idea for me as a child of the 1960s and as a former leftist who had gradually become more conservative over the years, while cultural critique was ignored for 25 years until Nathan Kaufness took a stab at it, people started contacting me about my ideas, and I developed links to activists. So I became an activist long after the project began. All innocent enough, I've written four extensive replies to Kaufness. Apparently he thinks the fifth time is the charm. I rather doubt it. My replies are here, kevinmcdonald.net. So... Let's get back to this uh, Twitter thread. So on Twitter, response to Kevin, the question raised by was whether Nathan Kofnis's work is biased by his ethnicity. Nathan Kofnis's reply was reasonable and straightforward. You haven't answered it. I believe he is biased, Kevin says, but so what? It's tough to prove, but it doesn't matter for any interesting question. His problem is that he is terrible at argumentation. Then Nathan Kaufness weighs in. He says, okay, but virtually everything you say about Jews and immigration is made up with key claims based on non-existent sources as documented in my paper. That's why I am skeptical of the idea that your scholarly investigation preceded the activism. Kevin responds, this is absolutely outrageous. You're the most dishonest person I've ever dealt with in the academic world. A true snake. <laughs> That's what uh, Matthew Lipton <laughs> said that uh, Kevin McDonald must view Nathan Kaufness as a snake. Okay, once again, I will deal with your garbage, one bad argument after another, and I will post it online since the academic journals won't have the integrity to publish it. Be patient, it will take some time. And your skepticism that I wasn't an ethnic activist until after I read the literature. Give me some evidence that I showed any signs of ethnic activism before I published Separation and Discontents and Culture of Critique. Right, So I, I think Kevin is absolutely right here. I, I, I'm not aware of any evidence that uh, Kevin McDonald was an ethnic activist prior to 1998. You, on the other hand, went into your critique as a strongly identified Jew. On what basis does Kevin say that Nathan Kaufness is a strongly identified Jew? Kaufness does not believe in God. He does not practice Judaism. He married to a non-Jew. I, I don't understand the basis for Kevin's critique. You're just another garden-variety academic Jewish activist. I wrote a book about them. 
You know nothing at all about the issues I had dealt with. You decided to go after me because you are a Jewish ethnic activist and you saw it was a way to get a reputation in the academic world. Nathan responds, your only evidence that I'm a Jewish ethnic activist is that I criticized your pseudoscience. But that's okay. You can just make up a fake quote where I say I'm a strongly identified Jew and then say I married a co-ethnic just like you did for Franz Boas. Oh, man. So, a lot of good stuff here going on in, in Twitter. Uh, but uh, what, what was uh, particularly interesting is that there's a response here by Kevin where he says, F you, but he doesn't say F you. <laughs> he, he says the F U C K word. Oh. Uh, where is that? It's so good. So good. Oh, okay. So I don't quite understand this. Okay, I've got it. And then uh, Kevin responds, there is a difference between making a very minor mistake or two and make absolutely no difference to the argument versus making things up, but it's the sort of thing that is beyond the activist mindset. Ultra Testosterone says, actually, these weren't minor errors. Kofnis successfully confirms you made a lot of your arguments up and added Jewish identities when there were none. Kevin responds, absurd, and he knows it. Kevin, why don't you debate Nathan? It would be a good debate where you can set rules for time limits and agree to a moderator. It would be epic. Kevin McDonald responds, I'm a man of the written word. Nathan responds, one of the most common replies when I post anything JQ related is that I am a coward because I refuse to have a live debate with you, Kevin McDonald. It's fine if you don't want to debate, but your followers should come up with a new retort. <laughs> and then Matthew Gabriel of History Speaks on Twitter says, I get this too, and it's so strange because I frequently ask third positionists, aka neo-Nazis, to debate me on Holocaust denial and the origins of World War II, and they, like Kevin McDonald, run away. Then Lucian Wolf says, has Mike Enoch officially chickened out? And then Kevin McDonald says, F you. Then uh, Matthew Gabriel says, Nathan Kaufness is hardly a loquacious public speaker. Just do it Mac, maybe get a moderator like Luke Ford and have a fact check session afterwards. But uh, Kevin McDonald says he's already had the experience of uh, talking to Luke Ford. He's, uh, he's been there and done that. Kevin says Luke Ford is hardly neutral, been there, done that. Then History Speaks says, well, get Ethan Rao for the kill stream then. He is, if anything, more inclined to your views, but knows how to be an unbiased moderator. Kevin says, the debate is a non-starter for me for the reasons I have given. Kevin says, I focus on where the money and the power are focused. Of course, there are always Jews who are outside the mainstream. Some are undoubtedly strongly identified. How exactly do you define strongly identified Jew? This is a key term in your argument, but it seems to be exasperatingly vague, which allows you to define it however you wish. Right, that's Matthew Gabriel, PhD student at uh, London School of Economics. 
Kevin says, you have to go into the biographical literature, letters, associational patterns, writings. Matthew says, these are the historical research methods into a person, but we also need abstract criteria independent of a particular case as to what constitutes a strongly identified Jew. Otherwise, the whole story theory is unfalsifiable. Now, you're practically speaking in tautologies. My question is, what constitutes a strongly identified Jew? I'm looking for a general abstract definition. Okay, so Nathan Kaufness, Kevin McDonald, all getting into it. Now, is, is our friend Kenneth Brown, he's still live. Right, he's been going live for, for two hours. Uh, the topic is the logic of racial polarization. So the chat there says, let's, let's have a look at uh, what uh, Ken Brown's doing. So that he's been going for two hours, man. Two hour epic uh, live stream. How, how good is it? Any, any good time stamps? You should get Richard Spencer on here. You should stop changing your username every other day. So he's no longer Kenneth Brown. He's no longer Deep Left Joker. Now he's just Joker. Elliot Blatt is over here. How would you compare Joe Biden's charisma to Ron DeSantis? So there's not a lot of uh, chat going on here on this live stream. Let's uh, let's give Kenneth a minute here. See what watch and say. consume is totally based on networks. So, like the reason why people watch Alex Friedman are good, and you know maybe maybe some people are going to sleep. Maybe some people are getting on. You should get Richard on here. Well, hey, look, I I he has my contact info. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what the guy wants from me. I really hate his audience with a passion, and, and I'm not an Apolloist or whatever. And so I was really happy. I wish I did that Liars on the Right uh, video on him much earlier, because the day that I did that video, like all of the posting of like, you need to talk to him, like that all stopped. Like it was just really annoying for a long time. So I was just getting a lot of like, because he would promote my stuff, and then, and then I would get people in my comments like just posting like dumb, like I remember one was like, like just like, I would just post stuff that had nothing to do with politics whatsoever on Twitter. And I would get these like just neo-Nazi stuff. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't want to be affiliated with this. I don't get along with these people. This is weird. Like why? Like if, if <laughs> we are not the same, we are not affiliated. Why are, what's, what's going on here? It's just, it's very strange to me the way in which you can get like, okay, I've said this before, I'll say it again, but like a lot of what people choose to watch and consume is totally based on networks. So. Like the reason why people watch Alex Friedman or Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro isn't because these people are like competent and intelligent and interesting. I think I could probably do a better job than some of these people. Like not until like obviously they put in hard work. Okay, that's highly disingenuous. So Kenneth Brown is is complaining that uh, he's linked in with various people he doesn't like on the alt right, but uh, Kenneth Brown's audience comes almost entirely from his videos about the alt right. Right, that's where he gets his audience. He admits that he does videos about the alt-right because that's the way to get an audience. So if that's how you build your audience, you shouldn't be surprised then if people associate you with the very specific way you've built your audience. And they have great work ethic and they're good networking and whatever. But I'm saying in terms of like, if you sat me down with, 
I'm trying to think of who my my favorite Joe Rogan interview. I didn't see the whole thing because because he's on Spotify and I don't have Spotify. But um, who's the guy? Uh, Peter Zion. Peter Zion was on was on Joe Rogan, and it's like okay, I could probably have a better conversation with Peter Zion than Joe Rogan could, right? So why are people watching Joe Rogan interview Peter Zion and not me? Well, it's because Joe Rogan's a lot better at networking than I am, and. So then I start thinking about, okay, what's my YouTube audience? And it's like, all right, well, if, um, you know, I'm best friends with Richard and then his audience, which is like this, like, what is his audience, right? So it's like, who is he friends with? Well, you know, he's against Donald Trump and he's friends with Charles Johnson and okay, you know, but then you look at his audience and his audience doesn't even like him. Like a lot of the people of his, what is he, like 70K Twitter followers? It's like out of those 70,000 people, how many of them actually like him and agree with his arguments? It seems to be a, a relatively small percentage because there's this inertial effect, this network effect where he gained this audience, this alt-right audience, and then he's just um, he's just stuck with that, you know? And it's really hard to shake that. So even if he changes his views on one thing or another, not to say that, you know, he's ever going to have the correct position or ever agree with me on on, uh, on my position, but like he's, he's kind of stuck with a certain mob following him around and hate watching him or hate following him. And I don't want to be a part of that. I've experienced that on Twitter. I've experienced that to a degree. I don't like it. I don't deal well with it. I really don't think anyone enjoys that aspect of the internet where you have a bunch of consumers who they might hate you and still watch you. I mean, I find that ridiculous. And I think, you know, these people obviously they get off on resenting. Okay. You can't accomplish anything in the world. You can't make any significant contribution without inspiring some pushback and some hatred so if you're not willing to stand up to people's hatred then you'll you'll never be able to say anything or do anything for the public people that's why they do it because they're they're resentful um so yeah it's like poisonous to be surrounded by people like that so so that's what i really hate the most and that's why i was really happy with that video because it, it sort of shook a lot of those people shook them off my back and i was happy with that but i said look um, I've, I've really never said no, like, again, unless you are, it, it's not even worth mentioning, like, like anyone who I'm not, I'm just not typically someone who refuses a, uh, some kind of like a good faith discussion or good faith debate. Like I've debated plenty of people on the right. Um, I'd love to, you know, pretty much debate anybody. I'm, I'm open to all of that, but, um, you do sort of, and, and what I've noticed is that, um, well, he does refuse to talk to me, you know, when you become the right wing reply guy which is sort of what I've uh, done with the liars on the right stuff. Yeah, you're not the right-wing reply guy. You're a guy who built your audience talking about the alt-right, isn't the right-wing. You, you specialized in the alt-right. That's how you built your audience. And there's nothing wrong with that. I d did much the same thing. Uh, when you do that, you sort of build up this right-wing audience who, like if I do a video in response to, and, and this is the tactic, right? You put like Moldbug in the title. And then everybody who likes Moldbug watches the video. People who don't like Moldbug don't even know who the guy is, right? The only people who've ever heard of Moldbug are like esoteric Moldbug fans. So if I put liars in the right Moldbug in the title, what I'm doing is I'm attracting a bunch of Moldbug fans to my channel. And now I have a bunch of Moldbug fans in my audience. And even if they hate me, even if they disagree with me, even if they're toxic, even if they're weird, like they're still like hate watching the videos. They're still hate following the videos. And you know, this is just a fact of the social dynamic on social media. Like I can't change this. But, you know, I, I still will, I still will complain about it. Right. And that's my main contention with these sort of conversations and collaborations is there has to be a certain frame because I, I, my tolerance, like there are limits to my tolerance in terms of like being hunky dory and, and, um, making friends with people in the right wing or people who have, who have this baggage. Um, you know, because when you have a large anti-Semitic audience, like I'm not going to get along with those people. So it just doesn't make sense. It's a, it's, it's a weird. Wait, wait, wait. This is a guy who wouldn't talk to Jews, wouldn't talk to anyone who, who platformed Jews. 
and and now he's condemning the the weird anti-semitic audience i mean people live in that i mean he was very open that he would not talk to jews and that he would not talk to anyone who platforms jews i mean that was his open stated position about three years ago but now he is uh made uncomfortable by anti-semitism that's kind of like again it's like an internet bubble i think that the term is panopticon so like people are observing this uh, from like the ring of gaijis like an anonymous viewer is going to watch my videos and be like oh you should talk with this person you should collaborate with this person and they're not understanding the thing from the from my perspective which is that your, your, your perspective which is that you're uncomfortable with like normal human connection with normal human interaction with normal human emotions right it's it's frightening for you which is not a criticism right you didn't choose to be this way but uh the idea that some people love people is just a confusing world for kenneth uh, uh yeah you, you become the, the people you associate with and the question is you know what direction are you going in um so I don't know. That's a that's a big old rant on that. But this this is the types of people like you know who's Randy Mythic Don. You know they're like okay thoughts on this e-celeb, thoughts on that e-celeb. Will you talk with this e-celeb? Guys, try to engage with the arguments sometime. You know I know I know we're all into the parasocial e-celeb worship, but uh, again, come on, Kenneth, you've built your entire audience by playing into the e-celeb parasocial phenomenon. It's your liars on the right where you take down this or that person on the alt right. That's the 98% of how you built your audience. So don't pretend that you're above it. This is precisely how you built your channel. I, I just, at some point, like, like it's a good networking strategy. It's a good way to get views. Um, but yeah, he deliberately, you know, does videos to get views on alt-right personalities, but now he wants to pretend that he's above all this. I also, I would say, I think, what's her name? Stardust, I think, is she's like an Indian woman. She's a young Indian woman on YouTube. I don't know if she's still on YouTube, but I think she got banned and she was interviewing Richard. And so it doesn't seem, I, I'm, I'm happy to engage with, if there's an argument that he's making, then I'm happy to respond to it. Like if we want to debate Nietzscheanism or debate Apolloism. Yeah, because Kenneth is just above and beyond making personal attacks, except for when he does make personal attacks and he's very good at them. Like, I think Kenneth is great. Like, I enjoy Kenneth. Right. He seems like a good person. He's uh, not toxic. He doesn't get consumed by by feuds. You know, I think this is a good bloke. All right. But uh, this idea that somehow he wants to rise above personal attacks when you know, the primary way that he developed his channel was by making personal attacks on people on the alt right, which I have no problem with it. I, I think frequently personal attacks are useful, are important. He's you know, he's very good at uh, what he does. He's a smart young man. Some or debate, you know, any any topic. I'm, I'm happy to debate the ideas, but this is this is ah, this is so this is such nonsense. All right, I mean, this is a man who is frequently gone for for personal attacks. So this idea that he's now above and beyond personal attacks. I mean, if he wants to. What, disavow his past self and the entire way he built his channel then say that yeah i used to traffic in personal attacks but now i disavow it's difficult to um it's difficult to justify like e-celeb networking when the only purpose of e-celeb networking is to increase views and if you get your channel banned then it seems like that defeats the purpose right you've built your channel through e-celeb networking by picking on various controversial characters on the alt-right 
and calling them liars frequently without any evidence. I mean, I couldn't live with myself. If I made a video about someone, uh, the equivalent of liars on the right, you know, Joe Blow, and I provided zero evidence that that person was a liar, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Like, I, my, my whole system would revolt. I'd be appalled and ashamed. Kenneth Brown has no problems making videos about liars on the right and providing zero substance, right? zero evidence. Right? He, he, he floats in a world beyond substance and evidence. He doesn't feel like he needs to make any justification. He doesn't feel like he needs to provide any evidence. He's going to make a video calling someone a liar. So, but yeah, I'll, I'll debate people. I'll talk to people, but I don't know. Um, still goes on the crucible. Yeah. Isn't the crucible, is that on YouTube? Okay. He doesn't want to leave his, his hug box, right? He's been rather parsimonious with anyone he debates. See, I don't know all these things. I'm not, I'm not super, I'm not as up to date as maybe Sephirim Goose is <laughs> a funny username. Um, don't bring back that hundred likes for another video nonsense. Yeah. I used to do that. Um, and it was effective at getting views on the channel and getting likes on the channel is an effective tactic. Um, so I can't. Uh, Elliot Blatt says, uh, Kenneth never makes a point. It's just endless rambling. Okay. The capricious youth. Tucker has some good points to make. Let's get a little Tucker Carlson from tonight's show. About half of all U.S. households have at least one gun at home, and many have much more than that. Plus, they have ammo billions and billions of rounds of it. Those are all real numbers, but they are hardly an argument for gun control. They're an argument, in fact, against it. Ask yourself, what would it require to confiscate all those guns and all that ammunition and turn the United States into a disarmed nation like Turkmenistan or North Korea? Well, it would take a police state and it would end in civil war. No sane person wants either one of those things, but thankfully we don't need them. The fact that so many Americans have a firearm within reach but never commit violence tells you that guns are not the problem. Most people in this country can be trusted with an AR-15, just as we can be trusted with cars and light aircraft and electricity and baseball bats and insecticide and chainsaws and pruning shears and countless other objects that could easily double as weapons. On some level, all of us understand this. The problem is always the person, not the tool he uses to commit a crime. If you wanted to stop murder, you would focus on the people who are committing murder, not on the hundreds of millions of their neighbors who are not. You'd really want to know what motivated killers to kill. And the first thing you would do is study what murderers have in common with one another, how they were raised and where, their educational backgrounds, their genetic makeup, drug and alcohol use. Their wow, that's a great point. We should be studying the genetic makeup of murderers, right? That is not done. All right, that is like highly, highly framed, uh, frowned upon. But we do have evidence that say murderers have far more, you know, facial deformities, facial scars than, than regular people. We should be studying the physical manifestations of murderers, what makes them different from non-murderers. We should look at uh, genetics. What role does genetics play? Tucker's 100% right, but 99% of criminologists are on the left. And so these basic things like studying the genetics and the physiognomy of murders, murderers is just highly frowned upon. It's, it's absurd. Tucker's Ideological right. and religious views, their sexual behavior, and probably a whole lot of other factors. You would study murderers, and you would do it with an open mind, as a scientist would. You would be serious about it because it matters.
In the late 19th century, researchers finally decided that infection is spread by germs. And as a result of that conclusion, surgeons are now required to wash their hands before they cut you open. Everybody agrees that this is progress. But what if we had refused to learn how infection is spread? What if we just didn't want to know? Well, appendectomies would still be fatal, and we would be a backward, ridiculous, uncaring people. It's impossible even to imagine that. And yet, on the question of violent crime, of murder, it's very easy to imagine that because it's happening. Our leaders are determined not to know why people shoot each other, and they don't want us to know either. They're adamant that we do not ask questions about motive. It seems, for example, like an awful lot of mass shooters have taken prescription psychiatric drugs in the days before they opened fire and killed others. Have you noticed that? Maybe you have noticed that. Good luck saying it in public. You'll be shouted down immediately by someone with an advanced degree. How dare you criticize Big Pharma? What are you, a conspiracy nut? No, actually you're not. You're someone who cares about cause and effect. You're a rational person. Okay, so good on Tucker Carlson. He says some important things. Right, would you date a podcast bro? Their reputations have caught up with them. Article in the New York Times, March 6th. Right? So, starts with Tazan Robeson, a student at California State University, Northridge, was approaching one year of an on-again, off-again dating with a co-worker when she came to a realization she would eventually announce to her followers on Twitter. My biggest mistake in life so far was dating a man with a podcast. I remember the... The woman who stole my virginity from me when I was 22 at UCLA. She was advised by a friend, never date a writer because he'll, he'll write about you. Date an older man because he'll treat you like a flower. So she says, my biggest mistake in life so far was dating a man with a podcast. So she was 24. She began seeing this bloke in December 2021. He was 35 at the time. He had dreams of being a social media influencer. They both worked at an Amazon warehouse near her home. The situation was very embarrassing, but she continued to date him until January of this year. I knew he had a podcast, but I'd never listened to it. I was like, okay, I like this man. I'm already ignoring his social media presence. I'm just going to forget he has a podcast. Things were fine when they were together, so long as Miss Robeson didn't think about his extracurriculars, until one day he sent her a link to his show, inviting her to listen and to share her thoughts. What she heard turned her off. So it wasn't just the content of the bloke's podcast. It was the fact that he had a podcast. Like many other women, she associates podcasting with a certain kind of man, one who is endlessly fascinated by his own opinions, loves the sound of his own voice, and isn't the least bit shy about offering unsolicited opinions on masculinity, sexuality, and women. Okay, so I think, I think this is unfair. Men are more interested in the wider world. Right. Men are more interested in abstract things. Men are more interested in figuring out the world of politics, international relations, the, the economy. All right. So this is the weakest. This is the weakest critique I know of live streamers and podcasters that they love the sound of their own voice. Right? I don't know anyone who loves the sound of their own voice. And I don't know anyone who finds it a pleasure to listen back to themselves. So that is just absolutely absurd. It's just such a weak and common critique of live streamers and podcasters. I mean, I'm not in love with the sound of my own voice. I don't 
you know, I don't wince and I don't, you know, tighten up. It's like, oh, God, I hate it. But it, it's not a source of pleasure to me to listen back to my own voice. What I do like is, uh, you know, sharing things with, with people and, you know, getting pushback, getting challenges, uh, thinking socially. We think much more effectively, accurately, powerfully, deeply when we think socially as opposed to just in our heads. So many women have taken to social media to mock the podcast bro. Okay, so yeah, I, I'm sure there's plenty of things to mock about uh, people having a podcast. But out of all the things that a man can do, is it really, is it really more of a detriment that a man say hosts a podcast as opposed to playing video games? I would think that hosting a podcast for most people would be a considerable improvement over playing video games. Is is hosting a podcast is it you know worse than watching TV? Is hosting a podcast worse than the things that uh, women like to do? You know, watching romance novels, reality shows, uh, junk TV, social media drama. So, women. Uh, on TikTok, hashtags like men with podcasts gather videos of women using a beard filter to satirize the sort of things that male podcasters say, such as, why as a man are you born in the month of February? Or, that's the problem with women who read. Others have called on them to put down the mics and to get a job. Well, it's not an absurd critique because, let's say, out of your typical 10 guys who start a podcast, what percentage of them do you think damage their lives and the lives of you know people who are connected to them so i'm going to say maybe 30% 40% okay so out of 10 guys who host a, a podcast uh what percentage are distracted from more important obligations by hosting a podcast uh, to what extent are they using the podcast as an escape from reality, as a way to run away from their obligations, such as to earn money? So maybe one out of 10, two out of 10. And then I think probably 50% of guys hosting a podcast, it enhances their life. It's a positive hobby in their life. I mean, what what's the, the breakdown that, that you see? Now, let's get back to this New York Times article. With the once booming podcast industry currently on the back foot and the host's reputation for self-important mansplaining having long since caught up with them. Really, has it... Uh, just because the podcasting industry is currently on the back foot, what does that say about you know 99 guys out of 100 who do it as a hobby? right? That the podcasting industry is on the back foot doesn't affect me, doesn't affect people like me, and... So if you're doing it as a hobby, that uh, the podcasting industry is on, on the back foot is no big deal. Okay, and uh, host reputation for self-important mansplaining. Well, most people are self-important. Most people have an exaggerated sense of their own significance. It's just that when you podcast uh, or live stream, this normal natural human tendency tends to get exacerbated exaggerated 
seems to be encouraged by the medium of, of going online. And yeah, many people who do things online tend to lose proportion, <laughs> lose a sense of proportion, lose a sense of reality. So this isn't a, an absurd critique. Now, mansplaining. All right, this is a real thing that uh, men tend not to read social cues as well as a woman. So I think only once or twice in my life, maybe fewer than half a dozen times, have I dated a woman who was worse at reading social cues than me. So normally women are far better at reading social cues. And so one you know, negative aspect of mansplaining is when a man's not reading social cues and he you know, starts lecturing people right, in, in a conversational setting where lecturing people is not appropriate. Yeah, when he becomes a potterast. Good term, Glenn Medley. All right. Is the podcast bro officially a persona non grata in today's dating landscape? It, that's, you know, way too broad of a claim. People are complicated. So even if a woman doesn't like that a guy has a podcast, that's unlikely to be the only thing about him. So I, I think, uh, you know, women critiquing men being overly self-important uh, being out of touch with reality with regard to their, their podcasts, you know, probably 50% of that's a pretty strong critique. Masks are good at hiding social cues. <laughs> so is Botox. So in interviews with a handful of men who work in podcasting, some said they have come across romantic prospects who view their profession as a potential red flag. So here is uh, my my dating experience. Before I got online, I had a very active dating life. And so my, my experience is that at least five women had a negative reaction to my, you know, online activities. All right, it was more of a turn off for them than a turn on. So probably a ratio of five to one in a negative direction for my blogging live streaming 10 to 1 maybe 21 possibly even you know 40 to 1 negative to positive but i it didn't it didn't uh, handicap me from you know dating women uh, having relationships but i think probably overall yeah it made people you know a lot of women and uh, stand back and uh Media Hit says women don't like people hanging out in the live stream and podcasting world. They prefer them to stay with NPR and the New York Times. So some men preemptively adjust their presentation of themselves to make a clear distinction. So I remember there was one time I didn't talk about my blog to a woman I was dating and we went out two times. It you know, it was going well and I mean, I'd showed her my credit card had my blog name on it when I you know, paid for us to go, go to the movie, but I just didn't talk about my blog, and she thought I was trying to deceive her. Is the blogger held in more contempt than the podcaster? Well, I don't think either, either genre has uh, social prestige in and of itself. Most people, you know, most people probably think you're a loser if you, <laughs> you say if you identify as a blogger or a podcaster. But uh, the, the podcaster is definitely much more open to the low IQ, right? Blogging, 
requires far more cognitive ability than podcasting. So Tyree Rush, 29-year-old podcast producer in Atlanta, says he makes it a point not to list his profession in the dating app profiles. He says he works in digital media. And he says this, this one woman kept pressing him. And finally, he says, I produce podcasts. And she thought that he was lying to her because he was initially just saying digital media. So yeah, women are very quick to become convinced that you're lying to her. So it's it's an interesting thing because when you're first meeting someone, if you say the wrong thing, it can just end all conversation. So I had like several pleasant conversations with an attractive young woman and and then we started talking about Audible books. And I mentioned, oh, yeah, I leave you know Audible books running all night <laughs> because I don't want to be alone with my thoughts. And she said, okay, we're not going there. And ever since then, she's just like totally avoided me. If we ever run into each other, like she has just the most minimal of all interactions. I mean, it's as though I said I was a, a rapist or a pederast or something uh, when I said that, you know, my mind's a dangerous neighborhood that I don't like to enter alone. Just because I said that my mind is like a war zone, just because I just happened to mention at the water cooler that my mind's trying to kill me, uh, just that uh, I said that, you know, my mind's a more dangerous place than uh, the Crimea right now, uh, just because I said, you know, my mind's a more dangerous place than South Central LA, just because I mentioned something about, you know, rival gangs are fighting it out in my mind, uh, you know, they've got the Crips and the Bloods in there. And, and she said, okay, we're not going there. Just totally, totally shut, shut me down shut me off because it was it was too early it was too soon so you reveal things that can cause people to turn you off you know fairly quickly right when you're first initially getting to know someone all right we are just wired to say no we're just wired to say no to people we're just wired to kind of bl block them from our lives as a self-protective safety thing and so that's why the normal a socially astute person doesn't reveal a whole lot initially, but just slowly and reciprocally you know, reveals intimate things about his life. There was much coziness sharing newspapers and bagels in bed on a weekend. Women detest men with a weak microphone. The blogger has zero overhead with blogger. And uh, the woman said, don't tell me you like doing a Joe Budden podcast or anything like that. Scrutiny, the podcast bro archetype has appeared in other areas of pop culture. So I remember in the TV show Girls, who, who, who's the Sheila who's behind, who was behind? Uh, I actually watched it. I watched two seasons of Girls. I don't know if it went beyond two seasons of Girls. But you know, it was that fat chick who loved, you know, just kept getting naked. I can't stop herself from continually getting naked. But anyway, she does have a funny line in Girls where she's at a party. Lena Dunham. She's at a party and someone tells her that he is an Alexander Technique teacher. And she says, that's the gayest thing I've ever heard. So in the Netflix comedy, You People, Ezra, a white broker played by Jonah Hill, reveals to his date that his dream job is to do his hip-hop culture podcast full-time which is first met with laughter, followed quickly by judgment and concern. So Mr. Rush says he understands the wariness given the many things women have to be afraid of when it comes to dating men. Podcast is just another thing to worry about. It's like a new chivalry or etiquette that we're trying to figure out. 
Logan Mendoza is one of four hosts of Sweet Talks, video podcasts on YouTube. He says they often get direct messages from men who enjoy their content. At the end of the day, you want to entertain the listeners and the viewers. So to do that, you're going to have to say some crazy stuff. Sometimes we'll say stuff, but we don't really fall in line with it. Sometimes we'll disagree on a topic, just have that argument with each other and have different points of view. Raymond Pang, 31-year-old podcast producer, says he never personally experienced romantic rejection because of his profession. He says it was often a point of entry. About a month ago, he started seeing someone new. While he was single, he presented himself as an audio producer. Didn't know of many people who work in audio who would call themselves podcasters, though, given the unappealing idea that anybody can be a podcaster. Could mean that you work at This American Life. Could mean that you record a podcast with a bunch of your friends to talk about misogynistic stuff. For her part, Ms. Robeson, the Cal State student, said that after her experience, she would never again date a man in podcasts. Absolutely not. So in all likelihood, uh, if you're a podcaster, that is reducing your income. And women want to hitch themselves to a man who she can project into the future is going to have a very good income. So she rationally sees the, the podcaster bro as someone who's going to be less likely to earn good money. And in the rare chance that he hits it big as a podcaster, he's going to leave her behind because he'll have far more options. So if you do a podcast with guests, your world opens up. The more open your world, the more chances are that you're going to leave your wife or your girlfriend. Right? Uh, men who work in Hollywood, men who work around attractive young women, rarely, 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 if ever, stay faithful. So the primary reason that most men stay faithful is because of lack of opportunity. Men with opportunity, right, rarely are able to summon the fortitude to say no to sex with attractive young women. So the bigger your world gets, the more people who are flowing in it into your world, right, the more opportunities you have to move on from your girlfriend or your wife. It's very hard, for example, to maintain a, a relationship in Hollywood. It's very hard to maintain any kind of you know, marriage if you're just frequently around attractive young women. And so women find that frightening. It's why they often like to fatten up their husbands when they first get married because you know, they want to make him unattractive to other women. The only conspiracy here is the one to design to prevent you from figuring out why mass shootings keep happening. Consider the killings that took place on Monday in Nashville. The killer was a 28-year-old female transgenderist who shot her way into a Christian elementary school and murdered three nine-year-olds and three adults. Why did she do that? In a rational country, that is the very first question we would ask. In our country, it's the last question. In fact, often it's never asked at all. On those rare occasions when somebody finally manages to wonder out loud about motive, our leaders immediately start lying, which should tell you a lot. Here's the Attorney General of the United States yesterday. I realize that the shooter is dead, but the shooter could have had collaborators. Do you plan on, on opening a hate crime investigation for the targeting of Christians? The um, FBI and ATF are both uh, on the scene working with the um, uh, local police. Uh, as of now, motive hasn't been identified, and the police chief said at the last at his last press conference that they don't yet 
have reached a conclusion with respect to uh, motive. Uh, we are certainly working full-time with them to try and determine what the motive is. And, of course, motive is what determines whether it's a hate crime or not. So here's what we just learned from Merrick Garland. The FBI, the ATF, and the Nashville police are all investigating these shootings. Yet, more than 24 hours after they took place, none of those professional investigators can even guess as to why the shootings happened. Motive hasn't been identified, Garland told us. Really? You wonder how that could possibly be. Just before she opened fire, the Nashville shooter wrote these words to her best friend over Instagram. Quote, one day this will make more sense. I've left behind more than enough evidence. That evidence includes a written manifesto where the killer spells out exactly why she killed children. The FBI, the ATF, the Nashville police, and for that matter, Merrick Garland, all have access to that manifesto. And yet somehow the attorney general informs us that a motive has not yet been identified. Well, he's lying. They all are lying. We can't see the manifesto because the transgender lobby, which has far more power than you do, has pressured politicians to keep it hidden. But we can be certain what it says. Monday's victims were murdered because they were Christians. It's that simple. Transgenderists hate Christians above all, not because Christians are a physical threat. The third graders were not a physical threat. But because Christians refuse to join every other liar in our society and proclaim that transgenderists are gods with the power to change nature itself. Remember, to be woke means that you believe that uh, certain groups should be immune from criticism. Gays, Jews, blacks, and the transgendered, for example. While there's no immunity from criticism if you're Christian or if you're white or if you're a man. So I don't know if you realize this, but I struggle a little bit with anxiety. And sometimes anxiety becomes you know, quite intense. Uh, it makes me wonder like, how much anxiety is just chronically operating in my system. Yeah, the sensitivity readers need to edit the manifesto first. Glib Medley says, everybody's a streamer, everybody's a star, everybody's in live stream, doesn't matter who you are. So, anxiety. So, when I, when I have a problem, often the first place I go for answers these days is YouTube. And I really like the Doc Snipes channel. And I really liked her, her videos on anxiety. So her name is Dr. Dawn Elise Snipes. She has a PhD in mental health from mental health counseling from the University of Florida in 2002. And I was watching her, her video this morning and just provided a ton of clarity. It's just really helpful. So when I go to bed at night, I usually have a, a really busy day. I'm, you know, going from like 4 a.m. So for the last, last Two and a half months, no, last six months, I've been typically getting up at about 4 a.m. So sometimes 3 a.m., occasionally 5 a.m., but usually around 4 a.m. So I'm usually going uh, pretty, you know, I'm busy basically until about 8 p.m. or so at night. And then when my head hits the pillow about 8.30, 9.30, then I'm not busy and all these thoughts start rushing into my mind, that many of which I don't want. <laughs> Many of them are highly critical. They say, oh, 40, you know, you blew it when you did this or that. Or, you know, you're, you're missing this in your life. Or, you know, what kind of life do you have when you don't have this or that? 
and I don't like those intrusive thoughts. All right, my mind is a dangerous neighborhood. I don't like to enter alone. My mind is is trying to kill me. So I just let uh, Audible books run all night, and so I just kind of move in and out of sleep uh, listening. So last night I was listening to this uh, ten hour great courses series on uh, history of Japan since World War Two. And I didn't always used to do this, right? This is you know, a new development in my life. I think it's about uh, 15 years old. I, I just don't like to be alone with my thoughts unless I'm meditating, right? When I'm meditating, then I'm fine with being alone with my thoughts. But when I'm meditating, I'm listening to guided meditations, right? So I'm not alone with my thoughts. I'm listening to uh, Daniel Siegel's Wheel of Awareness you know, meditation. So I like the precision of uh, Dr. Snipes here talking about triggers for anxiety. So yeah, low self-esteem. When, when I get those you know, really harsh voices, critical voices in my life, you know, remember how you screwed up this. Remember how you screwed up that. Remember how you blew up that relationship. Remember how you blew that opportunity. Remember how you let down you know, those people. Remember how you embarrassed yourself here, right? So those are the types of thoughts that come, you know, into my mind when I'm trying to get to sleep. So yeah, low self-esteem, uh, irrational thoughts and cognitive distortions. Yeah, so getting out of touch with reality, uh, being stuck in unhealthy relationships. So sometimes there, there are people in your life who just drive you crazy, but you, you can't, you know, rid yourself of them for various reasons. So these, you know, very commonsensical observations really help me. Anxiety, abandonment and rejection. And we're going to talk about ways we might want to deal with these things. So, yeah, abandonment. If you go just a few layers into me, things that, that tap on abandonment. And so things that provoke resentment in me uh, are things that uh, cause me to feel abandoned. And of course, you know, my biggest struggle with abandonment is when I just abandon myself, abandon my own welfare. Uh, stop being a good friend to myself, you know, stop looking after myself. So it, here's, here's an example. It was a very cold day out, and I, I was running to, to synagogue for afternoon prayers, and, and my friend, you know, looked at me, you know, kind of shivering in the cold, and he said, we have to get you a coat. And your reaction to that would, would probably, if you're a healthy person, is, you know, how am I so unprepared for reality that I'm not wearing a coat? But my... My reaction was, I just felt so warmed. I just felt so cared for and loved. I just felt like I was being taken care of. It was just like the greatest feeling. That's why I would love going to doctors, to therapists, to psychiatrists, to acupuncturists, to chiropractors, to you know all the bespoke uh, alternative health practitioners, because I just love being taken care of. And I guess I still love being taken care of. Like anything that makes me feel being taken care of you know, it just really, it, it's just the, the warmest, the most wonderful feeling for me in the world. So I used to go to this low-cost therapy center, and there was an option where you could do your therapy in front of a, a crowd of like 10 or 20 uh, would-be therapists or get your acupuncture in front of like 10 or 20 would-be acupuncturists, and then you'd get feedback from them all. And like the, the attention of 10 or 20 would-be therapists or acupuncturists just really made me feel good. And uh, I managed to wean myself off that kind of thirstiness for, you know, people taking care of me. It's just, you know, way too expensive. 
and of course the the feelings of being taken care of are only temporary so i'd like to think that as i've gotten older i've learned to take you know better care of myself as i've immersed myself in a 12-step approach to life that you know when i stay in in the 12-step approach to life i don't have that that neediness you know quite so obviously just oozing out of me everywhere ah but some of the underlying themes that I've seen in a lot of clients and when I do the research, what a lot of what themes that come out include low self-esteem. If someone has low self-esteem, they're looking to be externally validated. Oftentimes they're looking. Yes. Why do you think we, we low self-esteem people live stream? Why do you think we do podcasts? Right. The primary reason that we, that people live stream and do podcasts is because they have low self-esteem and are looking for external validation. Right? That's not the only reason. But that's probably the single biggest reason, right? It's, it's why people get on social media, where they podcast, where they live stream, looking for external validation. And then when you get it, it is intoxicating. And that's what leads to audience capture. Because if you are thirsty for validation, right, then you're just going to follow your audience. And that can lead you into some pretty dark and destructive places. So I have certainly you know, felt the tug of audience capture. And I'd like to think that I've grown you know, more mature over the past few years. I'd like to think I'm less susceptible to audience capture. I'd like to think I'm less susceptible to feeling intoxicated if someone pays attention to me or gives me a compliment for my online work. So that's, that's my self-conception. But yeah, I think you have to be honest, low self-esteem you know, drives people to do things to get external validation and so my perception of my own journey is that uh, post 2016 like entering new 12-step programs in 2015 enabled me to get the tools to be able to increasingly internally self-validate so that I'd become less needy for external validation so I could stand up to, to my audience and I can still do a live stream even if every single person in the chat disagrees with me because I I perceive that I'm not as dependent on external validation as I used to be. For somebody else to tell them, you're lovable, you're okay. So that can lead to anxiety about not having people to tell them you're okay, which makes their relationships tenuous and, and can make them dysfunctional. Irrational thoughts and cognitive distortions may lead people to believe that if I'm not perfect, for example, I am not lovable. So we're going to look at some irrational thoughts and cognitive distortions. Unhealthy social supports and relationships. When you're in a relationship, it takes two to tango. And even if your client is relatively mentally and physically healthy, if they are in a dysfunctional relationship. So this is a video aimed at uh, psychotherapists. They can fear abandonment and rejection. If that other person is always saying, if you don't do X, I'm going to leave you. Or if that other person is always cheating on them or whatever. So relationships can trigger abandonment anxiety. And ineffective interpersonal skills can lead to... So I have frequently dated women who just had contempt for me. <laughs> so... I was attracted to women who had contempt for me because many of the people who had taken care of me, I think, early in my life had quite a bit of contempt for me. And so there's, there's a large part of me who feels that being the object of contempt is normal and natural. Relationship turmoil and social anxiety. Yeah, I'd like to think that I develop more effective interpersonal skills. And as a result, I feel less anxiety. Also... I find I have less anxiety when I have a job or I have clients or I have regular income coming in, uh, money in the bank, investments, all right? I feel much less anxious when I've got 
you know, $25,000 than when I just have, you know, $25 in the bank. I have much less anxiety when I'm feeling strong, you know, when I'm doing push-ups and pull-ups and working out with weights, right? I've started taking the, the beef organ capsules. I feel physically strong. I'm fairly fit, right? I feel less anxiety then. I feel less anxiety when I'm getting along with people as opposed to just having conflict after conflict with people. When I feel like I'm successfully navigating reality, I have less anxiety. When I'm simply more competent, more effective in the world, I find I have less anxiety. And then when I have less anxiety, I sleep better. And then when I have a good night's sleep, I have less anxiety. When I'm struggling in life, then I have more anxiety, then I sleep poorly, and then the poor sleep increases my anxiety, which makes me less effective at life, and it's a negative spiral. If our clients are in relationships, even if they're not completely dysfunctional, if our clients are not able to ask for what they need and set appropriate boundaries and manage. Yeah, I remember I had this girlfriend who was as deeply flawed as I am, but I was so impressed by her ability to ask for what she needed. All right. So she was in regular psychotherapy. She had a psychiatrist and it was just very brave of her and very you know, worthy of, of, of praise that for all her problems, she was learning to ask for what she needed. Conflict effectively, because conflict happens in every relationship. Then they. Yeah, my therapist would notice I don't like to negotiate relationships, and all relationships require negotiation. So I'm very tempted to just do my own thing, like a live stream where I just completely control everything. In a normal relationship, you don't get to control everything like you do on a, on a live stream. So I tend to shy away from confrontation. I tend to shy away from negotiation. I tend to want you know, things on my own terms. If I don't get to have them on my own terms, I just, you know, just go solo. Right? These have been lifelong tendencies. They may start to argue more, which may lead to fearing, um, may lead to relationships ending. So yeah, I have spent way too much of my life arguing. <laughs> like arguing on a live stream, that, that's one thing, but you know, unnecessarily arguing with people in, in real life, particularly people who are important for my happiness and welfare, is incredibly self-destructive, and yet I have engaged in it big time. Being in the past, and them going, well, every relationship I get into ends, which means I must not be lovable. So they start feeling, fearing abandonment and rejection. So these are four areas that we can look at when we're assessing clients. Another issue is the unknown and loss of control. A lot of times, negative self-talk and cognitive distortions can contribute to that. If I don't have control of everything, then it's all going to be a disaster. Negative others. When clients hang out or when people hang out with negative people, it kind of wears on you after a while. You notice that people who are tend to be more negative, pessimistic. Yeah, this is true. It's really helped my happiness level to dial way back uh, negative people in my life. Right? I'm, I'm not a big believer in cutting people out of your life, but you can dial back the intensity, the frequency, the intimacy of your interaction. So instead of seeing people in person, you can just talk to them over the phone instead of you know, interacting with them every day. You can just you know, dial it back to once a month or something. So I like this idea of dialing people up or down in your life. And you can do that by diminishing the number of interactions, the intensity of the interactions, the length of the interactions, and whether the interactions are in person or you know, over the phone or just via text message. Mystic, conspiracy-minded, tend to hang out with people who are also negative, pessimistic, and conspiracy-minded. So. Yeah, I, I find that uh, my life is better off if I minimize people like that in my life. If you're hanging out with somebody who tends to be anxious, then the anxiety can be palpable and it can kind of permeate. Physical complaints. 
can lead people to be anxious. Yeah, being around anxious people makes me anxious. Being around tense people makes me tense. Being around unhappy people makes me unhappy. Being around resentful people makes me resentful. Being around angry people makes me angry. Just because they don't know what's causing it. Like I said earlier, sometimes if your heart starts to race, if you don't know what's causing it, you can start thinking, I'm having a heart attack or I'm going to die. Um, when people have panic attacks, for example, they truly think they're having a heart attack. And it's, I, I've had them. They are very, very. Okay, so some great videos from Duck Snipes on anxiety. I really appreciated them. Right, Politico, why Glenn Youngkin would be crazy not to run for president. I agree. The Virginia governor offers two things that Republicans need, a non-hostile alternative to Trump and a compelling centrist challenge to Joe Biden. People, please, implored the Republican governor of Virginia, let us set aside acrimony and finger-pointing and all the mental gymnastics of partisanship that combine to make people so tired and cynical about politics as usual. Before setting all that aside, however, Glenn Youngkin had some work to do. In the very same speech which he urged bipartisan committee, he blamed Democrats for systematically lowering standards for student achievement, for being soft on crime, and for outsourcing the state's energy future to radical bureaucrats in California. So a politician who speaks from both sides of his mouth is hardly a rare phenomenon. More uncommon, however, is to find one who does so with cheerful ebulence. And Glenn Youngkin does it without reading the cue cards. Right? He's got centrist-sounding appeals to bipartisanship in this paragraph. He's got right-wing bongo drums in the next. And people generally do not find Glenn Youngkin powerful. All right? This guy can play both ends of the keyboard. He can sound notes of grievance and aspiration with equal fluency. If you can do that, you can go a long way. So Glenn Youngkin should run for president. Right. The Republican donor class, Republican activist class wants to put Trump out of their misery for good. Right. They would unite behind Glenn Youngkin. He is wealthy. He is earnestly religious. Right. He captured a lot of Democrats and independents to win Virginia. So he is a compassionate conservative. Right. He's like George W. Bush. So Ron DeSantis, right, his ascent has been powered by his zeal of cultural and ideological warfare. Trumpism without Trump. And Glenn Youngkin regularly wades into cultural politics as well. But he does it much more pleasant and you know, kind of centrist sounding way. So Glenn Youngkin says the GFP must avoid exclusionary rhetoric and ideological litmus tests. Right, Glenn Youngkin wants to revive the art of persuasion. So Virginia is a state where most statewide races trended Democrat in recent years. But Glenn Youngkin won. He's not so much Mitt Romney. He's more like George W. Bush. He's very much like compassionate conservatism. He advocates improved state mental health services. He combines the background of a wealthy elite with an affable, jockish sensibility. And he's got a plain, sincere, if showy, religiosity. Can I say grace real quick? He asked during a recent interview. So assured by his more secular visitors that this was fine, he spoke aloud in a minute-long prayer to the Heavenly Father, thanking him for the meal of fried chicken tacos. 
and seeking his blessing for the General Assembly members and the work that we're about to do. So Glenn Youngkin would be very much an entertaining addition to the 2024 race. And there is a future for a brand of GOP politics that lies somewhere between the nihilism of Donald Trump and the pallor of uh, Mitt Romney. Christians are not allowed to say that. They have their own God. And for that refusal, that unwillingness to bow down and worship a false idol, in this case of transgenderism, they were murdered. We have never seen this battle so starkly set as it is now. And it opens to us, to our eyes, the main divide in America. And it's not between race or political party. It's not even between religious affiliation. The divide is between people who think they are God and those who know they are not God. That is what the Nashville shooting was about. It's what virtually everything is about. That conflicts exist because these two groups could not be more different. They will be forever at odds with one another, and they always have been. People who know they are not God are by definition restrained. They understand the limits of their own power and of their virtue. They appreciate the complexity of the world, which they freely admit they don't really understand. So one of the last uh, academic analyses of 12-step programs, I think was a book called Not God, and said the essence of 12-step recovery is realizing that you're not God. Now, I'm quite skeptical of Tucker Carlson's thesis there. I don't think we really know what uh, motivated the the uh, trans shooter, right? We have some suspicions that she had a burn against Christianity, but I think this idea that she was at war with God is a bit much. Right, so many great articles in the New York Times. Do you live in a tight state or a loose one? Turns out it matters quite a bit. So we have two academics here who conducted a study designed to rank the 50 states on a scale of tightness and looseness. Tightness, looseness across the 50 United States, right, included the incidence of natural disasters, disease prevalence, residence levels of openness and conscientiousness, drug and alcohol use, homelessness, and incarceration rates. So tight states exhibit a high incidence of natural disasters, greater environmental vulnerability, fewer natural resources, greater incidence of disease and higher mortality rates with higher population density and greater degrees of external threat. So the South dominated the tight states. Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Louisiana, Kentucky, South Carolina, North Carolina. And the loosest states were California, Oregon, Washington, Maine, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Vermont. So in both 2016 and 2020, Donald Trump carried all 10 of the top tight states. Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden carried all 10 of the top loose states. So then we had a 2018 book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire the World. So people who feel the country is turning, is facing greater threats, desire greater tightness. And this correctly predicts their support for Donald Trump. Elliot Blatt says, California is loose as a $3 whore. So desired tightness predicts support for Trump far better than other measures. So a desire for tightness predicted a vote for Trump with 44 times more accuracy than other popular measures of authoritarianism. So the 2016 election, according to this academic, turned largely on primal cultural reflexes, ones that have been conditioned not only by cultural forces, but by a candidate who's able to exploit them. 
So some groups have much stronger norms than others. They are tight. So Orthodox Jews would be tight. Others have much weaker norms. They're loose. So cultures have, that have threats need rules to coordinate to survive. So think about how incredibly coordinated Japan is in response to natural disasters. Uh, Germany does not have naturally defensible borders, so it makes sense if uh, the Germans were pretty tight. So this tight, loose concept is an important framework to understand the rise of President Donald Trump and other leaders in Poland, Hungary, Italy, and France. When people perceive threat, whether real or imagined, they want strong rules and they want autocratic leaders to help them survive. So within minutes of exposing study participants to false information about terrorists, incidents, overpopulation, pathogen outbreaks, and natural disasters, their minds tightened. <coughs> they wanted stronger rules and punishments. Stand because no human can fully understand it. They may not always be good people, but they are certainly less dangerous people, if only because their ambitions are limited by the acknowledgement of reality. Only God can do certain things, and they know they are not him. Now, people who think they are God are not like this at all. People who believe they're God have no natural limits because God has no limits, nor do they have any real concern for others. They are their own God. They worship themselves. In Freudian terms, they are narcissists, and narcissists admit no fault. They externalize everything. They always blame others. So not surprisingly, given this, transgenderists and their allies spent today attacking Christians just days after transgenderist murdered Christian children. Here's Congresswoman Catherine Clark of Massachusetts on the House floor. Layered in my pride is my concern for you. I know your strength, but I also know how determined the forces are that have pitted themselves against you. The politicians and preachers who would rather see you languish in a dark closet than watch you engage the world as you do, cultivating joy and love wherever you go. Let's reject the forces of opposition and bigotry. Let's celebrate the bravery and beauty of our trans community. Cultivating joy and love wherever you go. This in response. Wow, that sounds like this community. I mean, aren't we just cultivating joy and love wherever we go? To the murder of children by a self-described trans person. You're the victim, transgenderists, not the dead children in Nashville. And of course, virtually everyone in power in this country agreed. Amazon, the company, sent an email to its employees from its LGBTQ plus department, assuring its trans employees that they were affirmed and they were great people. No mention whatsoever of the dead children in Nashville. Their concern was the only concern. And then NBC News ran this headline, one of many like it. Tennessee's trans communities concerned because of the focus on the identity of the shooter. No update from NBC on how the Christian community in Nashville is doing, because who cares? They're just mortals. Their concerns aren't meaningful. Joe Biden certainly doesn't care. Watch him chuckle as he talks about Monday's massacre. I have no idea. 
People who believe their God will always turn their rage and frustration outward. They will never blame themselves. How could they? They are God. So you should not be surprised to learn that in the wake of this shooting, when their agenda is revealed for all to see. Okay, so comment in the chat. Will I actually discuss the Kevin McDonald versus Nathan Kofner's dust up on Twitter? I did in the first uh, 20 minutes of the show. So you can rewind and you can catch that. I've done many shows on the Kevin McDonald versus Nathan Kofner's scholarly debate. It seems to me that uh, Nathan Kofner's makes a much stronger point. But uh, you want to catch my thoughts on it, you can go to the beginning of today's show or you can just uh, check out any of my videos. I interviewed Kevin McDonald many times. I've had uh, Nathan Kofner's on my show twice. So I've got a lot of videos on there. So there is that right interesting article in if there's one particular aspect that i haven't that's particularly of interest to you just bring it up in the chat and i will respond an interesting article here in the new york times so there are costs and benefits to being tight or being loose right tight communities loose communities have you know, strong points and weak points so Tightness encourages conscientiousness, social order, and self-control, along with closed-mindedness, conventional thinking, and cultural inertia. Looseness fosters tolerance, creativity, and adaptability, along with such liabilities as social disorder, lack of coordination, and impulsive behavior. So 47% of the most extreme conservatives strongly endorse the view the world is becoming a more and more dangerous place compared to just 19% of the most extreme liberals. Feeling threatened by the world correlates with support for a ban on Muslim immigrants and building a U.S.-Mexico wall. So conservatives and liberals see different things as threats. Right, so for the conservative, the greatest threats are disorder and chaos and for liberals the greatest threats are ignorance and bigotry so conservatives strongly endorse binding moral values aimed at protecting groups and relationships so conservatives judge transgressions involving personal and natural national betrayal disobedience to authority and disgusting or impure acts such as sexually or spiritually unchaste behavior is morally wrong. Liberals place more stress than conservatives on caring, kindness, fairness, and rights. So these are individualizing values. Conservatives focus more on loyalty, hierarchy, deference to authority, sanctity, and a higher standard of disgust known as binding values. So the values that are oriented around group preservation associated with judgments, decisions, and interpersonal orientations that sacrifice the welfare of individuals. So binding values are associated with Machiavellianism, victim derogation, blame, and belief that victims are causal contributors for a variety of harmful acts and a tendency to excuse transgressions of in-group members with attributions to the situation rather than the person. So, yeah, I don't see the world primarily as a collection of individuals. I guess I'm more traditional and conservative. I see the world primarily as groups. I don't believe that you come into the world primarily as an individual with certain inalienable rights. I believe that people come into the world as members of a group and whatever 
rights can be afforded, all right, will be protected and established by the group, by the nation state, and they will depend upon circumstances and situations. So conservatives are more likely to blame victims, say, of rape, saying, oh, you shouldn't have, you know, you shouldn't have gotten drunk and <laughs> so that you passed out in a frat house. So conservatives are more likely to believe in a just world, that conservatives are more likely to believe that good things happen to good people and that bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, if bad things happen to you, you're probably a bad person. So my father would often say to me, the problem is not that the world is unjust. The problem is the world is that the world is not perfectly just. So yeah, I think there is a tremendous amount of relative justice in the world. You know, far from perfect, but uh, yeah, generally speaking, I think you know a lot of good things happen to good people and a lot of bad things happen to bad people. But I would never think that just because something bad happened to you, that 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 means you're a bad person. Right? That's absurd. There will be no contrition, no changing of ways. There will only be acceleration, and there will be more violence coming. And they're telling us that. The press secretary for the governor of Arizona, Katie Hobbs, someone called Jocelyn Berry, who has just resigned apparently, uploaded this photograph hours after the killing along with the message, us when we see transphobes, a woman with a gun in her hand, hours after a woman with a gun in her hand killed Christian children in Nashville. In other words, the Christians had it coming. Don't affirm our delusions, we will murder you. Again, this is someone who works for the moderate governor of Arizona, who beat the radical Kerry Lake. And once again, this will continue and it will gather speed because the more they are revealed, the more they double down. They can never admit they are wrong because they believe they are gods with the power to control nature. So once again, you should not be surprised at all that there is something called the Trans Day of Vengeance coming this weekend, planned by Antifa in Washington, D.C. It was originally called the Trans Day of Visibility, but the Trans Radical Activist Network, the organizers, decided to change the name just before the massacre in Nashville. Now it's a Trans Day of Vengeance. Okay, back to some more from this New York Times column by Thomas Edsel. So he says it's psychologically necessary for anyone who wants to advocate for keeping things the way they are the haves should keep on having and the have-nots have got as much as they deserve. How can you advocate such a position while simultaneously viewing yourself as moral without also believing in the just world? Conversely, if you generally believe the world is not just and you view yourself as a moral person, then you're likely to feel like you have an obligation to change things. Hey, interesting analysis. So press one if you believe the world's basically just. Press two if you believe the world is basically not just. I don't think I would endorse either position. So I think in a largely free country, where you end up in life is you know, largely based on, on your own efforts. But much of the world is not free. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't align with either the just or the unjust theory. How long before there is a Timothy McVeigh event against the trans community? Oh, God, hope not. Is there really a, a trans community? I mean, do they you know, spend a lot of time hanging out and uh, building 
communities. It seems seems very much of an individualist pursuit. So Stephen Pinker says, conservatives are likelier to be married, patriotic, and religious, all of which make people happier. They may be less agreed by the status quo, whereas liberals take on society's problems as part of their own personal burdens. So liberals place politics closer to their identity and strive for meaning and purpose, in large part through politics, which is a recipe for frustration. So some features of the woke faction of liberalism may make people unhappier. So wokeism is cognitive behavioral therapy in reverse. It urges upon people maladaptive mental habits such as catastrophizing, feeling like a victim of forces beyond one's control, prioritizing emotions of hurt and anger over rational analysis, and dividing the world into allies and villains. So what are the psychological underpinnings of liberals and conservatives? The predominantly liberal social science establishment tends to analyze conservatism as a pathology and apply a double standard to characterizations of conservatives. So it may be that liberals are more sensitive to threats such as white supremacy, climate change, and patriarchy. Liberals may be more likely to moralize, may be more likely to see racism and transphobia in messages that others perceive as neutral, and more likely to surrender to emotions like harm and hurt. And then there's a question of partisan biases in processing political information. How does this contribute to rising divisions in society? So these academics say that uh, liberals and conservatives process information differently in the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, the DMPFC. And they mean vengeance. Vengeance for what? That's not clear. They've been caught, and so they become more aggressive, as people who worship themselves always do. And you can see it all over social media, threatening images everywhere. One trans activist posted this message yesterday, quote, kill Christ cucks, behead Christ cucks, roundhouse kick a Christ cuck into the concrete, slam dunk a Christ cuck baby into the trash can. Attached to this post is an image of someone holding a rifle and wearing body armor. Now, you would think in a country supposedly as sensitive to violence as ours, run by an administration that wants to end gun violence, that the Justice Department would be all over this because they're terrified, of course, of groups with guns who are organized trying to upset the social order. But in this case, they're not terrified at all. They have no problem with this whatsoever. We called the DOJ today to ask, what are you doing about this? They didn't bother to get back to us. Meanwhile, the tech barons are, as always, making sure you don't even know what's happening. Twitter, which was supposed to be free, has banned several users, including a sitting member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andy No, Sean Davis, for mentioning the existence of the Trans Day of Vengeance. You're not supposed to know it's coming. The head of trust at Twitter, a woman called Ella Irwin, is deliberately silencing reporting on this Day of Vengeance. Because again, it's coming, but you shouldn't be allowed to prepare for it. Sean Davis is one of the journalists who was silenced by Twitter. He is CEO of The Federalist. He joins us tonight. He's also a resident of Nashville who is familiar with the church and school that were shot up on Monday. Appreciate your coming on tonight, Sean Davis. Um, okay, Russ Douthat has an interesting column in the New York Times today on this theme. 
of uh, why why are people on the left, you know, so so unhappy? So how the right turned radical and the left became depressed. So why is it the conservatives consistently report being happier than liberals, but also seem more p politically discontented? At the same time, the political left has become more institutionalist, more invested in experts and establishments, even as progressive culture seems more shattered by unhappiness and mental illness. Conservatives claim greater contentment in their private lives, and then they go out and vote for paranoid outsiders and burn it down populists. So this happiness gap between liberals and conservatives is a persistent social science finding. It's visible across several eras and across many countries. And the view that my life is pretty good, but the country is going to hell, right? it wouldn't be unsurprising to hear in a bar in 1975 or 1990, let alone today. Now, the happiness gap between Republicans and Democrats is now larger than at any previous survey. So why is there stronger left-wing identification with big institutions and official expertise? So the cliche used to be Republicans fall in line, Democrats fall apart. So why is there this sense of despair over America among many right-wing thinkers? And why does the right have this impulse toward desperate measures to change the national trajectory when people are pretty happy in their personal lives? So if you feel secure in your own values, if you're confident that yours is a well-lived life, but the society around you seems to be swinging rapidly away from decent values, it is natural to be bewildered, to feel that something is badly out of joint, to decide that the entire system needs some kind of hard reboot. And it is easy to fall into paranoia and conspiracizing because it seems so unfathomable so many of your fellow Americans would be abandoning the trite and true. So the whole organizing premise of post-1960s American conservatism was that the country as a whole shared its values. Well, it's hard to believe that now. Fewer and fewer conservatives do. So where does conservative politics go without a traditional cultural foundation to conserve? So perhaps it's not surprising that conservative politics will often be a car wreck, a flinging of ripe fruit against a wall, no matter how happy individual conservatives claim to be. Liberals, the problem is different. They see a cruel nationalism throttling a healthy patriotism. They see bigotry overshadowing enlightenment. Even though the America today is more socially liberal on almost every issue than the America of George W. Bush, it's more secular, it's less heteronormative, it's more diverse, it's more influenced by radical ideas that once belonged to the fringe of academia. So why isn't the left happy? Well, there isn't some obvious ground for purpose and solidarity and ultimate meaning once you have deconstructed all the sources you consider tainted. And the left is at the vanguard of that deconstruction, particularly among the most left-wing youth. There you find the greatest unhappiness. So the very success of the left-wing project has devoured happiness. So you get this progressive two-step. You get it doubling down on faith in official expertise, the expansion of existing bureaucratic forms of power, joined to a push for further ideological purification inside those institutions, so we get a quest for a psychological revolution that will finally uproot the white male patriarchal forces that must still be responsible for any persistent discontent. 
and then you get anti-social socialism right we see now a left-wing politics that excuses the steady rise of collective anti-social behavior so everything from the decline of marriage and romance and sex to issues like crime drug addiction and mental illness now gets repackaged as something that the left is expected to valorize lest they give an inch to the reactionaries So the left currently is too invested in liberating the individual from oppressive moral norms to sustain any defense of the old faiths and faith ways. So it's become an ally of consumerism. So we've got a once radical left presiding over our institutions, presiding unhappily, miserably over our new world order that it ushered in, while a once conservative right convinced that it still has the secret of happiness looks to disruption and chaos as its only ladder back from exile. How do you assess the unwillingness of the Nashville Police Department, DOJ, the news media, to bring forward the motive in this crime? We all know exactly what they're doing, and they need to know that we know exactly what they're doing. They are hiding the facts because it is devastating to their narrative, and it's devastating to the delusional, demonic wing of people in their party uh, th whose support they count on. They do not want anyone to know that this murder, this, this massacre of children, was done by someone because of this evil transgender ideology. And you see it with Twitter, you see it with, with the police, you see it with DOJ, with Biden. They know what went down, and they want to make sure that you don't. This, this is all meant to spread lies, to cover up the truth, because they know that the truth is absolutely devastating to their political transgender ideology. And the truth is they hate Christians because Christians will not acknowledge that they are powerful enough to control nature. It, it really is. It's beyond ideolo ideological. It's spiritual. This is absolutely a, a spiritual war. I, I had a uh, text message from a friend today who is at that school, who had children at that school, uh, who recounted what they went through, what they learned, what they were waiting for, desperate waiting for news to hear of their children, of their loved ones. And what he said to, to us was, you have to fight back against the demonic forces that are at work here. Th this isn't a battle about politics. It's not. Okay, an extraordinary article in The New Yorker. The dirty secrets of a smear campaign. It's enough to make you anxious. A reporter at large published in the print issue of The New Yorker with the headline, The Smear Factory. Rumors ruined Hazim Nadal's business. Hackers told him who did it. Written by David D. Kirkpatrick. Narrated by Pej Vahdat. In the summer of 2017, Hazim Nadal a 34-year-old American living in Como, Italy, received an automated text message from his mobile phone carrier. How was our customer service? Puzzled, he called a friend at the company. Someone impersonating Nadal had obtained copies of his call history. A few weeks later, his account manager at Credit Suisse alerted him that an imposter who sounded nothing like Nadal, he has a slightly nasal, almost childlike voice, had phoned and asked for banking details. I started to feel like somebody was trying to scam me, Nadal told me. Nadal was the founder of a nine-year-old commodities trading business, Lord Energy. The Lord stood for liquid or dry, because the company shipped both crude oil and such dry goods as cement and corn. He had carved out a lucrative niche by establishing unconventional routes, Libya to Korea, 
Gabon to Italy. By the summer of 2017, Lord Energy, which was based in Lugano, a Swiss city across the border from Como, had a satellite office in Singapore, another opening in Houston, an annual revenue approaching $2 billion. Nada, whose parents emigrated from Egypt and Syria, is tall and slender, with curly dark hair that's neat at the sides and unruly on top. He'd recently married a Saudi woman he met while she was vacationing with her family in Switzerland. They now had a daughter, and were renovating a historic Liberty-style mansion that sat on a wooded hill overlooking Lake Como. The property's sweeping views and hillside swimming pool were so spectacular that George Clooney, a neighbor, had filmed the Nespresso commercial there, along with Jack Black and various glamorous women. The ad's running gag was the preposterous decadence of the setting. As a hobby, Nada had earned a pilot's license and also taken up skydiving. That March, he had opened a second business, outside Milan. A vertical wind tunnel, which the Italian military and the United States Air Force used to train paratroopers. Though Nada enjoyed his success, he sometimes worried that his life lacked mission especially when he compared himself with his father, Yusuf, then 86. Yusuf had joined the Muslim Brotherhood, the original Islamist movement as a teenager in Alexandria in 1947, during the group's founding decades. He never engaged in violence, not even in the riots preceding the 1952 coup that deposed Egypt's British-backed monarchy. But, as the coup's leaders consolidated their power, they jailed thousands of Brotherhood members, including Yusuf. He spent two years in prison, went into exile, and amassed a fortune in business in Libya, Austria, the United States, and finally in Switzerland. He founded a bank that, following Islamic tradition, did not charge. So supporting the Muslim Brotherhood was not a big deal until 9-11. And then the reaction to 9-11, right, any connection to the Muslim Brotherhood uh, would destroy your bank. It's similar to being alt-right prior to Richard Spencer's Hellgate and Charlottesville, right? Being alt-right was just, you know, part of, you know, a merry bench, bunch of online pranksters. But then when people started dying by people who, you know, used alt-right rhetoric, then suddenly having any connection to the alt-right was absolute social poison. Large conventional interest, and he became a major donor to an international emissary for the Brotherhood. He liked to call himself the movement's foreign minister. Hazim, in contrast, was planted firmly in the West. Born in Silver Spring, Maryland, he was bored by politics, casual about religion, proud of his American identity, and a fan of 90s hip-hop. He visited Egypt once, then never wanted to return. Hazim's passion was theoretical physics. After graduating from Rutgers, he'd received a master's in physics at Cambridge University, and a doctorate in applied math at Imperial College in London. Oil trading had started as a side gig. His father's business empire had fallen apart while Hasim was at Rutgers, and he traded commodities to pay for his graduate studies. Now oil had made Hasim richer than physics ever could have. He still missed research, and he daydreamed about going into the electric vehicle business, partly to atone for shipping so much planet-warming fuel. But before those suspicious calls started, his most pressing problem was an invasion of wild boars onto his property. He hunted them with a crossbow. In the fall of 2017, there was another deceptive call. A man pretending to represent Citibank contacted Nada's company and requested banking information about Lord Energy. 
so the the upshot is that there's a broker in switzerland who would sell his services not just to obtain private damaging information but would then uh go on to ruin your enemy's lives right for, for money so that's the that's the upshot the dirty secrets of a smear campaign here from the new yorker claiming that he wanted to process a payment then that december the company unexpectedly appeared in a gossipy online publication called africa intelligence the item was ostensibly about a delay in a lord energy tanker's departure from algeria nada had kept the tanker anchored for minor repairs but africa intelligence said that algerian authorities had blocked it otter still the article insinuated that the delay was linked to the implosion of his father's bank after the terrorist attacks of September. Okay, uh, Matt Cockerell. I can't find. How are you? What's what's going on tonight with you? I'm. Uh, I was just looking at uh, Twitter and I saw that you were engaging with Kevin McDonald, and I thought, <laughs> hey, I should indeed. Do a show. Yes, yes. Sorry for taking away the call in. I was eating and then i did a quick run i'm trying to get into because I, I found the the one that really gets me in holocaust now context is just you're fat motherfucker like that is their one compelling argument so i'm trying to address that not so much intellectually but through doing some exercise um i did engage with mcdonald um he doesn't like you anymore it appears luke he doesn't think you're fair i suggested you would moderate I think uh, I suggested you would moderate an exchange between him and Confidence, but he was not sympathetic to that idea. Yeah, I mean, I thought I was very fair to him all, all the times I've had him on the show. So, what can I say? Oh, I got him to condemn the Nazis, uh, which is interesting because he's recently been pro Nazi, I guess, on TRS. Um, Confidence quotes him to this effect. And I posted a picture of it's one of the pictures I use frequently because the Nazis trafficked. Uh, white Christian children. They ethnically, when they when they conquered Poland, for example, they ethnically cleansed the indigenous Polish inhabitants from the areas of Poland they had annexed, including lands that, by the way, had no historical connection to Germany, like Zamosk, renamed Himmlerstadt, from which this girl was uh, ethnically cleansed and sent to Auschwitz and murdered by phenol injection. I asked, hey, is this is this good? Right? Is sending twelve year old girl to Auschwitz uh, cr Christian? Right? Uh, to Auschwitz to kill her with a phenol injection. You can see she has like a, a, a bleeding lip in this. So apparently somebody roughed her up. Um, is that a good thing? And he said no. So I think that represents some kind of breakthrough. I don't know if that'll cause problems with Enoch and company because I think these crimes are either denied or excused by the typical neo-Nazis. And McDonald has been gravitating toward, the, I think, the neo-Nazi position. But maybe I made a difference. I don't know. And ha have you read his book, Culture of Critique? I have, but um, imperfectly. So I've, I'd say like in between. Um, so um, I, you know, I, I was working on reading this book a year and a half. Maybe I've just read so many books I can't remember the details of it. I feel like I read it at some point, but I've forgotten so many of the details of it. I know that his claims about the Frankfurt, the Frankfurt Schule um is is are silly um i mean there were they were ideological notions of race and they saw nazism and anti-semitism as a salient form of racism and then later on guys like marcuse 
move toward racism in the United States, right? So they were like attacking the salient form of racism. So when their, you know, their relatives are being murdered for being Jewish, that's a pretty salient form of racism, right? In your life, like, wow, this guy's killing my relatives in Germany for being Jewish. Whereas uh, by the 50s and 60s, he was like a guy like Marcuse, um, Jewish and supposedly an expression of ethnocentrism, um, of Jewish ethnocentrism. He's concerned with um, with civil rights in the United States and aligning with kind of radical African-American movements and Angela Davis, one of his students and so forth. So I, I didn't find it compelling at all, but I've forgotten so many of the details of it that I don't want to go on the record concerning it. Um, yeah, what do you, I mean, I just, it, it seems to me like the claims are so obviously false, like Jews are a, specific, are a highly ethnocentric group uh, in America, right? Um, and that these historical intellectuals and these movements were motivated by a Jewish <laughs> desire to evolutionary structure or something. It just seems quite silly. Kafnitz quite rightly points out that there's so many uh, there's so many movements that, particularly if you look at France, right, or like early British liberalism, that have very similar, very similar ways, egalitarian ways, um, and are not particularly Jewish, right? Like French postmodernism, you look at the major figures like Foucault, Foucault, Sartre, Derrida. These are not Jews. So, um, I think he. I think one thing McDonald does that I do remember from the book. Now that I'm thinking about it, is he Frank focuses on uh, the Frankfurt Schule, but he doesn't um, focus on non-Jewish uh, movements that had similar seminal effects on Western culture, but did not have a large Jewish representation. And then I think Kafnitz did a good job showing that he that McDonald mis misrepresents the Jewish identity of, of of these individuals, um, including and also like Boazian anthropology and so on like Boaz is misrepresented as an ethnically defined German who married a Jew and he didn't he didn't marry a Jew McDonald just made that up or made him, maybe he assumed it and then just forgot to check it I mean yeah. it could be that ideological I've heard of stuff like that happening I, I think it's possible he wasn't lying but it's obviously like the one thing I, I wanted to point out on Twitter today being a little bit back and forth so I'll try to be a little more coherent the one thing I wanted to point out on Twitter today is McDonald doesn't clearly outline criteria for what constitutes a highly ethnocentric Jew, right? He needs to clearly define that or highly identified Jew. He needs to clearly define that or his whole thing, Boaz and so forth, as highly ethnocentric becomes totally subjective. Yeah, because as an Orthodox Jew, I know, you know, highly ethnocentric Jews and they have zero non-Jewish friends. They would never consider marrying a non-Jew. They have Jewish spouses. They have Jewish children. They live, they spend all their spare time, all their socializing with fellow Orthodox Jews, right? They, they didn't even hang out much with secular Jews, let alone non-Jews. So the, the people with strong in-group identities, I'm very familiar with these people. And the idea that you could marry a non-Jew and still be regarded as a highly ethnocentric Jew just strikes me as ridiculous because I know ethnocentric Jews and they would they would never marry a non-Jew. And once you bring someone who's not Jewish into your life, you're you're not just bringing that individual; you're bringing their family, their friends, uh, their their social circles. So this idea that that uh, Jews 
you know, intermarrying at such a high rate says nothing about Jewish ethnocentrism just strikes me as absurd. Yeah, uh, it is absurd. I just think in order to test the theory, there need to be clear criteria as and as to what would constitute ethnocentric behavior for Jews as a group. And in terms of labeling these intellectuals highly identified with Jewishness and, and motivated. Uh, one second, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, no, uh, I'm on a call right now. Yeah. I'm actually um, um, going to be back in Britain in about three weeks. Okay. I was just in um, India for, but anyway, that uh, to get back to your point, um, the um, what was I talking about before my father? Well, I, I know highly ethnocentric people, and they're, they're not right. intermarried. I mean, you, you can't. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that at least an intellectual challenge for McDonald's that the vast majority of the Jewish secular community in the United States is intermarrying. And especially with respect to the men, that's going to mean the children are not in a, you know, be Jewish at all. And they're fine with their children, not a huge chunk of the global Jewish community. I imagine a large percentage. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, when you have one spouse who's not Jewish, only 25% of the offspring, according to at least one survey I've read, you know, grows up, you know, identifying as Jewish. So obviously, if you're a black nationalist, and but you married, you know, a white woman or a Japanese woman, uh, it would it would be kind of incongruous. So nationalist marrying a black, uh, a black woman and being identifies as black versus white. Yeah, I mean, it seems absurd on its on its face. Um, a large gap. The hypocrisy argument, I don't think, washes because I just think there's a very big. I don't know. Have you been to Israel? You probably have. Yes, yes, twice. So, is your impression, and I don't have a personal experience in Israel, but is your impression that um, the community in Israel is uh, just totally different, more, well, not, maybe that's a little exaggerated, but a very di inhabiting a very different moral and political universe than Jewish American, secular Jewish Americans, let's say. In many ways, but they're also very different Jews. So 95% of Jews in America are Ashkenazi, right. but only about 40% of Israelis are Ashkenazi. Population, correct. So Sephardic and uh, Mizrahi Jews well, tend to be, you know, much more centrist or right wing. Rate, sorry for interrupting you, look, but I have a question for you. As an academic or any rate a PhD student, I really should know this, and I do not. What the fuck is the difference between Sephardic and Mizrahim? Ashkenazi, I know, but what I thought Mizrahim is Middle Eastern. Sephardic is something to do with Jews expelled to from. Yeah, Sephardic Spanish. Jews come from from Spain. Their, their origins mm -hmm. are Spain, and they were expelled in in 1492. Uh, Mizrahi Jews are, are from the, the Middle East. So Sephardic Jews are the Jews of Southern Europe who were expelled from the the Iberian Peninsula in around 1492. Okay, so, but Sephardic would be different than Mizrahi, which would be like Iraqi Jews, Egyptian Jews, yeah. et cetera. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, the, the, in Israel, the majority is Mizrahim and Sephardic, I guess? Um, I would have, my impression is that about 40% of uh, Israeli Jews are Ashkenazi. Um, 
but uh, versus Mizrahi population in Israel. I'll have to look it up. So, okay, about uh, 45% of Israel's Jewish population identifies as Mizrahi or Sephardic, and 44% identify as Ashkenazi, about 3% as Ethiopian, and about 8% as mixed. So, mm-hmm. approximately even numbers between Ashkenazim versus uh, Mizrahi and Sephardi combined. But almost all Jews who dominate the news, whether in Europe or in Israel, are going to be Ashkenazi. Right, correct. But even the Ashkenazi, my guess is, just from reading polling data, not from personal experiences, and also just a sense of the East, having lived in the Middle East, um, even though it's obviously Israel is culturally different than bordering Arab states in the Levant, but I just feel like my impression from polling data and also from data like nearly half of Jews coughing some kind of transfer ethnic cleansing of the Arabs um, uh, from uh, Israel um, somewhere else, presumably like Jordan or Egypt or whatever, depending on whether you're in Gaza or the West Bank or I don't know. But but it just seems like the political values are very different. Like woke, I'm in, in Israel than it does in the United States among Jews. Yeah, so the the percentage of Ashkenazi Jews who would you know favor the complete transfer of all Arabs out of Israel would would be you know way under ten percent. It would probably be like five percent, three percent. But okay, the, in Israel, you mean? Yeah, in in Israel. Well, also in America, like very oh, yeah, few yeah. American Jews would support the the transfer of of Arabs out of Israel. Now, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews have much more firsthand experience of living with Arabs than do Ashkenazi Jews. And so just like whites in America who spend more time around blacks tend to have much more hostile attitudes towards blacks, while the whites in America who have the most liberal attitudes towards blacks tend to have the fewest interactions with them. Uh, So too in Israel, uh, Sephardi and Mizrahi favoring the expulsion of uh, Arabs out of Israel. Well, I'll have to push back on that, Luke. You, so are you? Are wait, you wait. You didn't even point? let me finish my point. So let me finish my sentence. So the, the percentage of of uh, Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews who would probably favor expulsion would, you know, probably be, be five, six, seven times out of Ashkenazim. Finished. Go ahead. Yeah. So first, on the point about whites and blacks, I think you're extrapolating from data would show like southern racism or xenophobia toward blacks but i think that that doesn't account for the level of segregation in the south i would expect it's quite the opposite that the more first-hand experience one has the more comfort one has around people of different races so i have to push back on that um in terms of your point about uh, jews i mean i don't know I, my guess would be it's more about different civic values than i mean western civic values western notions of human rights are very different than what most of the world subscribes to, right? So my guess would be a cultural explanation. But regardless, the point is, to bring it back to McDonald, that the difference between um, uh, American Jews and uh, Israeli Jews regarding their political instincts is not a matter of preference uh, for Jews and some kind of hypocrisy, but just the fact that we're dealing with two totally different populations. I mean, the analogy Kafnis uses is if you looked at 
Germans in 1942 Germany versus Germans in 1942 United States. Uh, again, the most parsimonious assumption isn't that this is just hypocrisy, but that they have very different civic values. Or Koreans in, in North Korea. Again, the much more extreme case, but still, I think that illustrates the power of cultural norms. And McDonald doesn't even consider this possibility, which I think is rather embarrassing, really, that people in a Near Eastern country uh, with different values and different, obviously, political circumstances and daily life fears are going to have different political values than, like, woke people at universities. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the situation is going to have a profound effect on how people relate to, you know, hot-button issues like uh, immigration or assimilation or the presence of strangers. Like, the more relaxed I am, the more safe I feel, the more ease I have with people who are different. The more I feel under pressure, the more I feel under threat, the more unsafe I feel, the less ease I have with people who are different. I think most people can identify with those dynamics. I think so as well. Um, but I think there are exceptions. Woke seems to me to be the opposite phenomenon. So you have xenophobia like really against whites from these woke people. And it's or fake feigned xenophobia, really. I think a lot of these people are white and they're marrying white. So I don't even know if it's authentic. But at least the, the, fa the faux expression of xenophobia and dislike of whites from these woke people um, and I think that's an expression of decadence, really, because like the kind of great social causes in America have largely been finished. Like African-Americans aren't confined to water to different water fountains or different schools anymore. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, Vietnam War, um, <laughs> these kind of social movements of the 60s and 70s have ended. They're kind of radicals without a cause and they're driven by decadence in a way. I mean, like the claim of being injured by people with different views, even like the case of Amy Waxer, I read about on my Twitter, like I think the views she's expressed are awful, reprehensible, but to, you probably disagree with me there. But no, no I, I agree with you. I, I, not that, I don't think they were awful. I think they were ill-advised and, you know, overly Sorry. crude. Go ahead. When I get back to Britain, um, hopefully it'll be better. But um, the... But regardless, the, the claim that wax just existing at the University of Pennsylvania is harmful to students of color or others just in the building, it's just totally absurd. It's nutty. I mean, <laughs> African-Americans 50, 60 years ago didn't complain about the existence of professors with far more right-wing views at various institutions like this. I mean, it's just... Just don't take her class, ignore her. I mean, the idea that you're harmed, it's like you're assaulted by her existence. It's just totally absurd. And I mean, the the, the pace at which the society's changed, the culture has changed. I mean, 10 years ago saying, oh, fuck her, but she has a right to speak and not be fired, would just be a banal liberal position. And now you're like a neo-Nazi if you take that position, even if you, as I do, just qualify it as rejecting her views. Yeah. Now, Nathan Kaufness is not a historian, uh, but you you are training as a historian. What do you think of the quality of his scholarship that you've read? Um, in general, I think Kaufness did a very good job. He obviously he's not engaged as a historian. He's kind of checking 
coffee, he's not going to archives, in other words, right? He's kind of checking uh, the secondary sources, McDonald's sites. And in that, he's not like doing, you know, from Boaz or, or he finds in the secondary literature that that over and over again, McDonald misrepresents the biographies of these people to try to make them appear to be more Jewish than they are, more identified as Jewish. Like he just falsely says, as I mentioned earlier, that Boaz was married to a Jew. He was not. He falsely says, he, he quotes, a, he cites a passage where Boaz is identifying as a German, saying despite the terrible political changes in Germany, um, I don't know what, whether this was from the late Weimar period where kind of anti-Semitism is born or the Hitler years, but he's saying I identify as a German despite hating what's happening in my country. And McDonald says, ah, oh, that means he's an ethnocentric Jew and he never says that, you know? So I think he did a good job of that. There, 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 there are a couple criticisms I've ha I'd have. Um, but one criticism a book uh, by Hermann Rauschning, um, who, which um, is not particularly highly regarded. Um, he did that to, um, there are many reasons why it's quite dubious as a primary source. It isn't founded on anything that contradicts many of the things we know about Hitler, also in terms of timing. And Kafnis does rely on that for a couple of quotes about Hitler, like Hitler saying, Jews want to join my movement, etc. I think these are dubious quotes. But in general, he makes a very strong case, I think, that, and his case is, he's, he's, he's kind of acting as a philosopher sometimes, and then he's checking McDonald's sources, right? And I think that... Yeah. And uh, what, how's, how have your interactions been with uh, the Holocaust denial crowd? Have you had any interactions with them? In what well, I, I don't think I've spoken to you in over six months. Uh, I'm trying to debate Mike Enoch, but he, he keeps running away from me. He agreed to it publicly. Um, I just think when you agree to something like that, you have to honor it, right? If you're going to have any kind of internet presence, you should honor that. And I've become increasingly irritated. So like, because what, what happened is there's a pattern which I've finally cut on to. Because I'm, I'm kind of inclined to be charitable, I think, as a person. So I, I thought, oh, he's busy with, uh, with his neo-Nazi activities, right? You know, that keep the guy busy. Um, but <laughs> over and over again, we would begin email exchanges. He'd apologize. He'd say, we need to pin down a date. And i say, oh, it's okay, Mike. You've been busy. And then just ghost me. So I think it's a pattern. And he's trying to dodge the debate. I've kind of lost patience. I mean, on Twitter, I just tweeted that he's an apologist. By, he's effectively an apologist for white genocide and the murder of trafficking and trafficking of white children. It's heady rhetoric, but I mean, the Nazis did traffic and murder white Christian Auschwitz. So, I mean, it's a it's it's harsh critique, but I think it's accurate. I mean, I can defend it intellectually, and so, but it kind of represents me going at him with both bales they're doing it if you get my point yeah now many people would be afraid to have anything to do with holocaust deniers so why are you not afraid to interact with them i just really have pre-woke views of freedom of speech i think 15 years ago if i was engaged in this kind of these interactions it would be a little controversial, but not too incendiary because I'm not obviously taking the neo-Nazi side. Um, yeah, it is controversial. Um, I think I have more freedom of speech that I know 
as a PhD student in Britain than I was in the United States. In the United States, I'd probably be thrown out of the program by now. Now, when I was in Australia, I heard you talking to Richard Spencer on one of his shows. So were you only on the one time or have you had further dialogue with Richard? No, I've talked to Richard many times. And I'm hopeful that, I, I, look, I want to write white boys. I really do. I think that the society promotes toward them, but that they've fallen for hatred and kind of dumb conspiracy theories and contrarianism for its own sake. And I also think their attitudes could be could potentially lead to violence. And I think we've seen cases of terrorism. So it not only would destroy their lives, but perhaps destroy other lives. So I want to basically deprogram them. I don't want to make them woke, right? I want to address is that made them, that pushed them into these views in the first place. But I want to deprogram them from their race hatreds and Nazism and conspiratorial worldview. So, and that includes Richard, right? And I have compassion for Richard, and I hope he politically, and I certainly would not be ashamed of the fact that I have interacted with him, yeah. And what did you learn from interacting with Richard? <laughs> He's just a hard nut to crack, right? Because a lot of these people aren't particularly intelligent. He is, right? Um, he's not unattractive. I'm sure he can get, um, you know. I don't really know why he fell into this. So there's kind of a mystery of that. There's also the fascinating process of kind of seeing him deprogram himself. I mean, generally with these people, and I've only have two scalps to claim, and neither of them, by the way, I can mention. But if you're if you're interested, I could. Uh, show you some DM screenshots on Twitter. Program two people, or at least push them on that in that direction. But Richard, I think I'm kind of pushing at an open door. I think he's moving in the right direction by himself, and that's kind of a fascinating process to see, seeing him deconstruct the alt-right but slowly, despite the fact that these are the memes on which he had founded his identity relatively recently. Yeah, and he's he's developed this new bond with uh, Charles Johnson. Have you noticed that? Oh wow, I haven't. Um, let me look. Uh, maybe I, I know Charles Johnson. I'm trying to. I, I lose track of these fucking people. Charles Johnson of uh, a little bit may, footballs or, or no? No, no, no. Different Charles Johnson. I um, I think it'd be best if you turned off the video. We might get better sound. Can you yeah, just, I'm sorry. It, it's, shit, it's fine. Bro. Just just turn off your video and we'll just go with the, the sound. So, yeah, okay. great, great, great. Yeah, so uh, Charles Johnson is a friend of Matt Gates. He, he, I think, used to write for the Weekly Standard. He, I guess, he would be called a troll, but uh, you haven't been paying attention to Richard and Charles Johnson, so th there's no, no point in bringing it up. Um, Maybe elaborate a bit. I'm, I actually, I think it, it, that interests me a bit that he's he's interacting with somebody who has proximity to, I mean, a prominent and kind of quasi mainstream figure in Gates. Yeah, I mean, uh, Charles Johnson introduced Matt Gates to his wife. You know, he's, he's friends with Matt Gates. He he you know, knows Peter Thiel. He he. I, I've met Charles Johnson. He's very intelligent, very capable, but he he also says a lot of wacky and even horrifying things but he also is frequently way ahead of the curve so he's he's that kind of 
interesting figure who says some important things and you know a lot of ridiculous things at the same time yeah i see and he's People... aware of richard's background oh yeah 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 so i don't think charles johnson was ever alt right but he was alt right uh, adjacent mm. uh but he's an interesting character in his his own uh his own stead. Truly, truly, yeah. Have you talked today to Nathan about um, about his about today's um, escapades with McDonald, or no? No, who who Nathan? Coffness, uh, Nathan Coffness. Oh, I I haven't talked to Nathan since he was on my show Friday morning. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Oh, is that the thing with him and Lipton, or is that yes, yes, uh, Matthew I watched, Lipton. I yeah, Lipton's an interesting character. He is. Yeah. He, is. Um, he got very esoteric as a Jamaican intellectual. He got very interested in these highly esoteric Western American discourses about Jews. I find that interesting. But I think I think intellectuals, like genuine intellectuals, and I, my guess is, I'm, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, having just heard one talk. But I guess I'm guessing Lipton does have intellectual instincts at least is you know his interest in ideas wants to read and so on intellectuals often are eccentric and strange obsessions and so on uh lipton writes for countercurrents and the the publication the occidental quarterly the occidental what? review wow okay a and he's also had charles murray on his show so he's had some really big name guests so well, having character. Murray on your show is, is one thing, but Murray doesn't advocate white right. nationalism. So he he writes for them. Is he actually advocating? Is he is he as a black man in Jamaican? Is he favor white nationalism? No, but he he's still he's he's no. I I haven't read him. You know, favoring white nationalism or neo-Nazism or anything like that. But I I think he he just loves engaging with dangerous ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there is, there is, I, there is an appeal to that. I see that. Uh, what I like is the idea of being part of a shift in cultural mores. So like mm -hmm. I said earlier, the, the cultural more, I, I really want, you're bad if you talk to the wrong person. It doesn't even matter what you say, right? Yeah. You can disagree with them, but if you're not like screeching and virtue signaling, how dare you be evil? And you just talk in a civilized fashion, like that now is a fireable offense, you know? Yeah, and uh, in the United States, <laughs> and, and I it's, see funny, it's not it's not something that just you know people on the right suffer. But uh, there's a great article, Anatomy of a Smear, in the, the New Yorker about how you know Muslims had their lives ruined because they had the you know the vaguest connection to the Muslim Brotherhood. But after nine eleven, you know any sort of connection to anyone who might be you know in the same ballpark of you know, Al-Qaeda or Islamic nationalism or Arab nationalism, you know, got a lot of people canceled too. So it's just, it's a human social group phenomena that if you have any connection to a group that's suddenly now regarded as heinous, it's going to come with a very stiff price. It is, yeah. Even language, even if you use terms. So mm -hmm. I have two, um, you know, my Twitter following has happily been growing, still quite modest, 561. I like the idea of, of building a Twitter following enough to sustain me and my research in case, like, some woke person just destroys my life, which could happen. Yeah, UK is, is not nearly as bad, but you still never know. 
And um, one, one of the um, motivations I have for having the capacity to strike out on my own is the people who have extreme or radical views and try to deprogram them, engage them as human beings, in other words, which yeah. I think is prohibited. The other thing that is prohibited is, is using even language. So like we all know about, you know, even if you're deploring the N-word or talking about it in, a, um, in an intellectual context, if you're not black, and certainly if you're white, even worse, um, it's, you know, you're, you're, your career will be destroyed. <laughs> this woman was quoting Snoop Dogg lyrics the other day, um, and it's a euphemism for the N-word, not even the N-word, and she got, um, she got fired. Uh, the other thing that just happened for me with my modest little Twitter following is two of my liberal followers got mad at me for using the term white genocide. So obviously I don't believe the United States is engaged in white genocide. There is anti-white bigotry in the United States, obviously. But just as obvious, calling it white genocide is a ridiculous over-exaggeration. So both are true. Um, but I use the term white genocide to talk about what the Nazis did to the Gentile Poles. And just for using that word, which obviously was a way of attacking the Nazis and trying to make life uncomfortable for people who advocate for the Nazis and claim they're pro-white, right? That's obviously the intent. Two people DM me out of a very small following, 561, and they're like, why did you use the word white genocide? I mean, unbelievable. These people, like they're, they're upset by terms, even regardless of the context or intent. Did you engage with them? I did a bit, yeah. Um, I made a I made a response to them, and one of them didn't respond to me. And the other said, "It just seems like a dog whistle." <laughs> well, yeah, it's a dog whistle against neo Nazis. <laughs> yeah, uh, what's it like being back in the United States? Do you have like fresher, keener observations of the United States from your time abroad? Um, well, I've only been here for oh, a couple weeks. Um, I am going to be back in Britain in another week. I'm just spending time with my mother and father actually here. Um, I have spent a lot of time at the library at University of Chicago, where I'm an alumnus. Um, I haven't interacted with all that many people. I've kind of lived on Twitter, and I've gone to the gym a lot. Um yeah, but you can, I mean, wokeness is so thick, you can cut it with a knife when you, when you step in across customs, you know, and show your passport. So I know, I know that, I know who my master is here, let's put it that way. And it's a different dynamic than in the United Kingdom, um, where this stuff definitely has a foothold, has a beachhead, but it is not this all-powerful hege hegemony, as is the United States. Um yeah, we'll see what happens in the fall. I'll be teaching in the fall, so that'll that'll be interesting. Like, will somebody find me on social media and get and scream? Who knows? But I've just committed in life, I guess. I can't really suppress myself. Another irony is my views wouldn't even be considered controversial like 15 years ago. Like, when we elected Obama, my views would be controversial. It's gotten that extreme. But we'll have to see if there is some incident, you know. I don't think there will be, but it's possible. And uh, why do you think uh, Koftis has so far survived cancellation? Well, it, it's in he said much more controversial things than I have publicly. Um, well, I, again, I think I've said this too many times. You're right to support this point, but I think the first point to consider is that wokeness is less strong in the UK. 
definitely exists, particularly in the media, academia, but it is less powerful. There, you know, these institutions have less power. So that's one thing. Second of all, you know, I think he comes across as earnest and not very threatening. He's kind of this like little nerdy guy, you know? He doesn't come across as some swaggering racist and so on. So I think that helps him debunk these charges, but um, he's really uh, managed to lead a life <laughs> despite this stuff. And it's pretty remarkable, I think. Would you have thought it was possible for him to get a position at as a postdoc at uh, Cambridge? I wouldn't have. Uh, I'm not surprised because he's he's got a very tight online game. Like he doesn't say stupid things online. And he's been very selective where he's published. Like he's pretty much only published in prestigious uh, publications. So uh, he, he has, he has you know, pursued his, his academic career in a way that has you know, allowed him, yes, to pursue very controversial areas, but he hasn't committed any self-destruction. Unlike almost everyone who has been canceled, has self-destructed through you know needless uh own goals like cruel like expressions of because he's he's obviously engaged in very controversial incendiary uh, topics but he hasn't used language that shows cruelty or desire to deprive people of civil rights and so on and a lot of people do this on the alt-right i mean spencer richard spencer called for i think a genocide of turks at one point yeah. um, i don't know why i, I really like look look i'm half egyptian so maybe i'm biased but i really like turkey <laughs> i mean i don't get it but but yeah and he called i think for the enslavement of haitians too well i don't i just don't think copness though really believes these crazy fascistic no. imperialistic things yeah no 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 he doesn't so there there are smarter ways and there there are dumber ways but what what's kind of amusing is that there was a guy who was who was cancelled about uh, six months ago. Who as soon as he he gloried in doing all this dissident research and he 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 published it in frequently you know non prestigious journals. He did did a lot of stuff with Ed Dutton, and then as soon as the mob came for him, he just took everything down that he could possibly take down. He mounted zero defense and he just bravely ran away. So he loved being an edge lord for years. Uh, Michael Woodley of of mean, like he changed his name to you know Michael Woodley of of many. Oh my! Yeah, and and then as soon as like he gloried in how dangerous and dissident, you know, his, his scholarship Actually, was. Like he's a Nazi fleeing Simon Wiesenthal or something. Yeah, yeah. As soon as the mob came for him, he just completely folded, just pulled down everything. Mounted no defense, just completely ran away. For years, he, he gloried in how controversial he was and how, you know, dangerous his uh, research was. But as soon as there was, as soon as there was a pushback, he just ran away. Yeah, I, no, I wouldn't do that. I mean, you know, you gotta, you gotta stand your two feet. And also, if you're trying your best, and you know, I've made many mistakes in my life, of course, but if you're trying your best, as I have been, you know. Uh, at least as I've matured, to be like a decent person, like, you know, not amazing, but decent. I'm sorry. 
just a decent person and like behave ethically and f- try to think about others, you know, like while trying to advance your self-interest, obviously I'm not claiming I'm primarily not self-interested. Of course I am. But if you try, if you have like some moral goalposts, I think that you'll do better, right? You'll not only stick up for yourself, but you won't say outrageous and cruel and kind of dumb, honestly, things like Spencer did. I don't, I think his problem was a lack of a, of any moral compass. I think he just went crazy with narcissism because he, the shit he said is just kind of dumb. And I don't think you'd say it if you had like any concern with the well-being of others. Right. Yeah. He's also self-confessed alcoholic and uh, drug user. So I, I think a lot of his troubles were the combination of, you know, alcohol and something like cocaine you know, fueling a, a grandiosity that was out of touch with reality. It was out of touch with reality. I, although I think it may have been fueled by the fact that he was surrounded by so many just extraordinarily mediocre people that maybe his greatness seemed more, I mean, if you're hanging out with Elon, you might feel that you're like a demigod compared to them. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've just uh, started a Substack, and you've got an essay here. Was Hitler a leftist? Uh, could you give us a, a quick uh, quick summary or a not so quick to, summary? Give me just fifteen seconds. Got to plug yep, in my. Yep, 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 yep. Go, go ahead. So, it's not about policy, about Republicans versus Democrats. It's right. about good versus evil and truth versus lies. And if we won't stand up for it, who will? It's it's so discouraging to me how few people with power have bothered to stand up for the, for what's true. For what's objectively true okay you you there you back i am yeah let me just plug it in give me okay yeah i'll, I'll give you another i'll give you another 30 we seconds are not god that is true sure. and they won't say it john davis i appreciate you coming on tonight and i'm so sorry about your city and what happened there thank you among those with power who should be standing up on behalf of a population an uninformed confused population is the news media whose job it is to do that so but they're asking that, right? no questions okay. about the shooters yeah, go ahead. where's the manifesto what dr- okay so uh, yeah talk to me about uh, this essay hitler was not a leftist so peter hitchens and um who i think you i'm sure your audience you have a literate audience look i'm sure they're familiar with him uh, paleoconservative yeah. and the brother of uh, Christopher Hitchens, and then also Tick History, who your audience may not be familiar with. He's a libertarian YouTuber with a very large following, many hundreds of thousands of subscribers, I believe. Certainly millions of views in, in his more well-watched videos. Drew a lot of attention lately by arguing that Nazi Germany was a leftist regime. By leftist, they mean, okay, racist, but leftist otherwise, right? Like profoundly racist, but... Uh, leftist. And I'm not a leftist. I don't think socialism (laughs) should be defended or leftism. I think leftism is kind of the architect of our misfortune right now as a society, but these ideas are are unsupportable. Namely, Ticks and Hitchens' claim that Hitler was a leftist. So the piece had um, three main parts. I talked about Hitler's rise to power and how this was facilitated by two things. First, by industrialists like Fritz Thyssen and um, I.G. Farben, and second of all, by political conservatives from Hitler's voters, who were mostly petty bourgeois. He actually did worse with the working class 
as a percentage of, of the vote adjusted for population than he did with the, uh, this kind of lower middle class vote. And then also the fact that he was appointed by a conservative, Paul von Hindenburg. They did this not because Hitler was a conservative. He was certainly not a conservative. He didn't like Christianity. He didn't have any kind of moral limits and moral limitations are, whether it's on imperialism or racism or whatever, I think they're very important to German and other conservatisms, right? Some kind of moral limit on personal behavior and domination of others. Nevertheless, he promised to liquidate the left, the revolutionary left, the social democrats, as well as the communists. And uh, therefore, once after the Great Depression, it was clear that the center-right parties, the kind of traditional conservative parties, did not have mass support. The conservatives threw their lot behind the Nazis, and as did a great many industrialists, and Hindenburg appointed Hitler president. So first, as I said, the Hitler came to power through conservatives. And then second, the second part is the vote is showing that the economic policies the Nazis pursued were hardly socialistic. In fact, they crushed labor rights for the benefit of uh, capitalists. So I can elaborate on that if you, if you wish. Um, yeah, maybe say, say a little bit more about your last point there. Sure. Well, when the Nazis uh, came to power, one of the first things they did after they prohibited the um, communists and the social democrats and so on, and other political parties to be sure, was to pass um, a law that applied the Fuhrer principle or the Fuhrer principle to um, industry. So in 1934, a year after Hitler came to power, maybe not one of the very first things to be fair, but um, they they pass a labor law that identifies the um, capitalist or the owner of firm as Führer and his leaders as Gefolgschaft or followers. And this law provides that the Führer has the total right within uh, the context of national labor legislation. So he couldn't violate national labor legislation to determine hours, wages, uh, procedures to be fired, etc. And the Nazis, moreover, slowly introduced um, legal loopholes, which which whittled away at labor, federal labor law passed in the Weimar years and prior. So it ended up that people were working far more than eight hours a week. Work hours went up and uh, pay uh, went down. Uh, moreover, there was an institution created called the Workbook, um, which was effectively a system of indenture. I think slavery would be a, an exaggeration, but it was a it was a system of indenture. So in order to get a job, the worker had to have his workbook, which had a record of uh, his employment and his labor and so on. And the catch was the employer had the right to keep the workbook, right? So the worker couldn't really quit his job and get another job unless the employer allowed this, right? Or maybe he buys the workbook from the employer. So it just created like a this was kind of the most dramatic expression of a number of policies that create a very strong power uh, differential between worker and fuhrer or <laughs> capitalists and so on. Um, and moreover, finally, like this had concrete, empirically measurable results. So under Nazi Germany, the percentage of national income that went to profits went way up, percentage that went to wages, pardon me, salaries uh, went uh, quite a bit down. And even though the economy grew quite a bit in the Nazi period, which again was right after the Great Depression, um, in the first several years before the war I'm talking about, 
um, the actually wages, real wages on hourly basis went down. The overall wages went up, and that's because these people, because of all the power that Nazi legislation had given the Fuhrer or the capitalist. So it wasn't capital, it wasn't um, socialist. People may wonder why was it called that then? Well, the reason is it used to be. It's like Chinese Communist Party. So in the early years of the Nazi Party, they were socialists. That's essentially the answer to that. And Hitler changed it essentially. Um, the early Nazi leaders um, were mostly socialistic. Hitler liquidated these elements slowly. Yeah, I, I'm not an expert in these things, but I, I've occasionally encountered uh, scholars and intellectuals who would just pronounce that, that indisputably the Nazis were left-wing. And whenever anyone pronounces that indisputably the Nazis were left-wing, I, I know I'm dealing with someone who's just completely irresponsible. I mean, you, the, the idea that it's just an open and shut case that, that Nazism is left-wing is completely absurd. And you, you made some, some good points that uh, the the overwhelming majority of scholars would tell you that Nazism was, was right-wing. Right, and it isn't as if now there's a con there's kind of a mirror image of this. So there are intellectuals like Noam Chomsky on the left who say, "Oh, Stalinism is <laughs> right wing." I mean, no. Look at the policies they pursued. Right, collectivization of farmland led to atrocities, but this obviously had a socialistic vision behind it. I mean, Stalinism was left wing and Nazism was right wing. People need to just get used to that. That's what the evidence strongly supports. Now, Nazism, I wouldn't call it conservative, right? I would grant them conservative intellectuals like Hitchens who, who want to disassociate themselves from it that, yeah, not conservative, but there is one uh, asterisk. The conservative side with them, right? They, they brought them to power. Now, would they have done that if they thought the Nazis would go on to exterminate Jews? I doubt it. And start this crazy... <laughs> unhinged war for Lebensraum, I doubt it, but they did bring him to power. And... What, ab what about the argument that the Nazis weren't fascists because fascism isn't racist? This is an interesting argument. So um, it just is a difficult argument to process because fascism did not have was not wed, especially in the first couple decades, was not wed to a racist ideology the way national socialism was. Um, I, I gave the anecdote one time when I appeared in your program in the past that in uh, Italian colonial Eritrea, there were, <laughs> there were literally men who had uh, uh, black wives and mixed race children who, were, who called themselves fascists which obviously you never would do, would say, I'm a Nazi, here's my black wife, you know, unless maybe you're Mikey Enoch, you'd do that. But, um, but you know, but the, the, the complexity of this is, there's a complexity here though. So Mussolini eventually does say, we have to embrace racism, but uh, he says, actually, and he tries to sort of, Kafnis actually mentions this, speaking of Kafnis, he mentions this in his uh, essay on the culture of retreat, his, his kind of final manifesto that the fascists tried to cover up after they made the racist turn, they tried to kind of cover up their history of working with Jews and so on, right? Like Mussolini tried to uh, marginalize the role of his, mis of his former mistress who was Jewish 
and was also an important fascist intellectual in the, the role of the ideological formation, the victory of the movement, so as to um, justify this turn to racism. But uh, no, the intellectual history of fascism does not entail, I think, an intrinsic commitment to biological racism, the way obviously Nazism does. Although uh, that claim is complicated by the fact that fascism does turn in this direction in the 1930s. I would say opportunistically, but there'd be others who'd say, oh, this is the true essence of fascism, right? You, you, you can't suppress a movement that is so ardently nationalistic and militaristic and masculine, chauvinistic. You can't suppress the racism in that forever, right? Yeah. It's latent always, they'd yeah. say. But but no, you, you have many quotes from Mussolini saying race is fake. You don't have to be a pure race to be a fascist, etc. You, you have like Mussolini sounding like a 1990s American liberal sometimes. Not a woke one, obviously, but like a... Um, he says race is mostly a fiction. We don't need racial purity. We're Italians. We're mixed blood anyway. You know, I, when Hitler, and early on when Hitler comes to power, he kind of ridicules he, with AIDS and so on. He'll ridicule Hitler's uh, racial ideology, right? But by the late 1930s, Mussolini's saying, oh, um, we have to be racist. And he's writing publications about this. Although I don't think the Italian people ever really bought into it that much. Um, the Holocaust, of course, occurs in Italy beginning in 1943, but I don't think the Italian people were supportive of it. And have you experienced the siren call of Apolloism? Have you felt tempted to follow <laughs> Richard Spencer into Apolloism? Yeah, well, honestly, that's kind of my big, th that requires a bit of a throat clearing because for me, I, I'm inclined to uh, think Spencer's on the right track, but then when I when I see, hear about this Apolloism business, I'm like, God, he still is falling for woo and rubbish. I mean, and, and his collaborator, Mark, Mark Brahman, actually is like a anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. Maybe Spencer isn't at this point. I hope not. No, he doesn't seem to be, but his collaborator, Brahman, definitely is. Like, Brahman thinks that like, <laughs> that Hollywood films are all efforts by Jews to um, demoralize the Aryan spirit through subliminal messaging. So, I mean, you know, you're not going to get very far with that. How have, you, <laughs> how have you managed to avoid the perils of the e-personality? So many people, when they go online and start sharing their views, they you know, really self-destruct. Uh, have you felt any tugs in, in the uh, self-destructive direction from being online? Or have you had to struggle with being online and sharing you know your, your thoughts spontaneously what what's that experience been like for you i think what's helped for me is i've generally spoken from a position of expertise like i know german i know a lot about the holocaust i've written a lot about that issue um as it relates to wignance i have shared political views like i shared the other week my view that despite you know obviously don't like what she says but it's crazy to say Amy Wax is like a threat to you just by existing in the building. If you're some rich kid at Penn Law, I mean, nutty, right? Yeah. Um, really nutty. Just don't take your class. You saw her in the hallway. Okay. Like, right next, you can talk to me about how you saw your crush in the hallway. You sound like you're 12 years old. I mean, just don't talk to her. Don't take your class. Um, but 
for me, I think I've been pretty true to myself. You'll have we'll have to see though. I mean, I think that the self is pretty, um, pretty dynamic, if you will. Maybe that's not the right word. The self changes, right? So yeah, if I become successful on this, I'm still really marginal and irrelevant. But if I become successful on ten thousand uh, viewers instead of five hundred and sixty-two or whatever, I'm starting to get supporters. I'm really get more more people are following me. I think it, we're getting more growth. I have more time now, uh, by the way. I, I, so I just completed, I, I was in India. I don't know if I told you that, Luke. Did I tell you I was in India? A little bit. Okay, yeah. I was in India for about a month and a half. So I wrote another chapter of my thesis. And I'm taking a break now and I'm visiting my family. It's spring break at my institution. And um, so I've had more time to focus on <laughs> the internet and rubbish for the last couple of weeks. And so I've been able to acquire more followers and I'm going to be, produce more content but i think whether it'll affect me or not we'll have to see when i I hope it doesn't i think i don't really respect that that people are corrupted by that but i i mean there's enough narcissism and stupidity in myself certainly that it could um i think i'd have to have more of a following though for that to happen i mean i'm not going to be like wow i got eight likes on this tweet you know fuck you everybody i'm better than you uh any any thoughts about india anything that struck you from your time there um, God, it's a, it's a whole talk. It's a, I think it's a wonderful, fascinating country with a lot of, um, with a lot of potential, a lot of problems. I think the caste system is alive and well from what I can see. I've looked and you don't have to list, take my account for it. Um, polling shows them, I think close to the majority of, Bra- of Brahmins still practice this untouchability. Nevertheless, they have improved in many respects. So first of all, they have a very impressive intelligentsia. There is a core uh, intellectual population in India that is innovative uh, and and comes to the U.S. and kicks our butt, you know, does well in our institutions, right, in the West. And, you know, many, many times goes back there and creates wealth. And inst- they're growing. Their economy is growing really fast. They have a lot of problems. They don't have Western human rights standards, certainly. But um, I think that there's, there's a, a future for India. But, the biggest issue I had in a practical basis there is the the air is so hard to breathe. Like I would walk, I would go for a walk uh, around <laughs> the little area I was staying near the West Bengal State Archives <laughs> in Kolkata. And uh, I'd find a lot of really cool stuff, by the way, from my research. But um, God, you, you, you go, I get back to my uh, room when I was staying and I'm coughing, you know. So the air quality is really bad. I think there's just a lot of incredible problems and incredible potential um you know but they're on the rise certainly despite the problems definitely a country on the rise like china you know that huge problems um especially from a western perspective but also incredible potential and i think belief in in themselves as a people which is which helps we don't really have that in the states right the chinese have it the indians have it uh, do you think there could be any similarities between we we finally got the rise of majoritarianism in India, so eighty percent of the population is Hindu, and they suddenly thought, hey, maybe we should act in our own self-interest like other groups do, and so you've got the rise of what's called Hindu is Hindu nationalism, which is really mm-hmm. Hinduism and nationalism. It's not you know Hindu nationalism, but uh, we, we increasingly have in some circles in the United States, the rise of Christian nationalism, which is frankly not very Christian, but it's it's really an attempt at uh, some kind of majoritarianism or some idea of 
you know, running the country along the lines of what's best for the majority. Do you do you have any thoughts on majoritarianism as it exhibited itself in India and how it may exhibit itself in the United States? You know, I'm not, I am a liberal, as you know, look, I'm not so much of a liberal that I think I have a great amount of authority. A lot of, you know, ironically, what this authority? I don't think I have that much authority to tell Indians how to run their country. Um, if they're committing genocide, you know, as an American, I'm going to condemn them for that. Like slavery, and I mean like old-fashioned slavery, you know, like I own you forever, right? Um, if, if they're doing something just totally egregious and violating like international treaties, I'll condemn them. But otherwise, I just I determine their fate, not me, you know? Um, I would like to see Muslims treated better than they are there. I mean, I, I knew um, uh, there's a guy who actually was a, who became a kind of buddy of mine there, uh, whose name was Muhammad of, of um, Muslim origin. And yeah, he, he talked about how the environment has certainly gotten worse under Modi for Muslims. But again, I think we have to be kind of humble about this, right? We got problems in our country. We have to be treating everybody with equal respect in our country, right? I mean, that, that's part of the cause. The lack of that is part of the cause of this of, of this far-right stuff, which I, I'm opposed to vis- viscerally. But if you get rid of woke, get rid of anti-white, you won't have far-right to nearly the same extent, you know? So I would say that the Indian people have problems, but I would defer judgment as a foreigner from condemning them. I think there are exceptions to every rule, right? But I don't, I don't think the situation there, well, there's, you know, shocking. And I think that they haven't crossed the threshold where I, as a foreigner, feel entitled to condemn them, if that, if that makes sense. No, it makes makes sense. Uh, makes sense completely. So, you you made a video, Holocaust deniers humiliated by inability to explain disappearance of millions of Jews in Nazi camps. Can you give us a little uh, summary of this video? Sure. So, the issue is as follows: uh, We know from Nazi deportation statistics, from documents like the Hofla Telegram, the Korher Report. Um, uh, various deportations to Auschwitz. We know that many millions of Jews were sent to the Nazi uh, uh, extermination and concentration camps systems. The end of the war, at most, a couple hundred thousand are found alive, survivors of the camps. So, well, well, well over 90% of them disappeared in the camp. So, my framing of this is, look, you need an explanation with evidence. People don't just vanish. So, our explanation that they were killed has a ton of evidence. All witnesses virtually, um, overwhelming documentary evidence referring to the extermination of Jews, forensic evidence, holes in the roof, hydrogen cyanide residues in the buildings the witnesses say were gas chambers, confessions by perpetrators in totally non-coercive contexts like Eichmann in Argentina, not when he was captured by the Jews, but in Argentina, El Husseini, the Arab collaborator in Syria, writing his memoirs. So we got a ton of evidence, they have zero. And I was mentioning that is a problem. They can't explain how millions of Jews disappeared in the camps with any explanation that has any evidence. They've tried to propose one such explanation. It's called, I don't know if you've heard of this, resettlement. Oh, really? Okay. So so the claim is, Luke, that 
I think some of the smarter ones realize, you know, we can't just say we have no idea. We don't know what happened because it just doesn't make sense that people would disappear in Nazi custody, millions. So the claim is that, okay, the Jews were taken out of the camps and resettled. They were channeled out of the camps and resettled. So superficially, that seems like, okay, they have an explanation now, right? But as I point out, wait a second. So you're claiming that this resettlement of millions of people existed in 1940s Europe and we don't have a trace of it? No infrastructure, no letters, no witnesses, no economic activity, nothing? Again, there'll be a community of millions of people, this so-called resettlement of Jews transited out of the camps. So I was kind of making fun of that because like, we have ancient preliterate cities we can find with archaeology and we can't find this settlement of millions, a trace of it, uh, that existed supposedly in the 1940s <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna roll. But uh, any any final words, comments, thoughts for today? Ah, uh, it's just good to be on again, Luke. Um, I'll have better internet the next time. Thank you for your patience, and I'll you know be a little bit tighter next time. I hear what you're talking about, Chad, and I agree. So take care. Okay, man. Take care. Good to talk to you, Matt. Okay. Bye-bye, guys.